And Zendaya says, this is only the beginning. And Paul says, desert power one more time. And then the movie ends. Just to spite you. I hate yeah. that. <laughs> it's such a stupid line. It's a very stupid line, yeah. And I love that they say it so many times because they're like, everyone oh needs God. to understand they need that to it's know the desert power, power of the desert, the desert power. And I'm like, I get it. I fucking get it, man. You're oh, in the yeah, desert the power and it's got a the power. Desert. There's giant sandworms the everywhere. Desert, we can power. think of better phrases. That desert power? Yes, that desert power. What other desert power? Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I'm joined today by Red from OSP. Uh, Red, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> well, you know, you've, you've brought some fun ones in the past, but as mm-hmm. per usual, I have to ask you the one question that I ask at the top of every show. Why did we watch Dune, the 2021 movie? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I can give a few answers. Uh, obviously, we've already run through a lot of the... Uh, the, the really big name uh, space <laughs> movies that uh, mm, I seem mm, to have yes. uh, created an unofficial theme for my selections with, which is always <laughs> fun. Because uh, for those of you who are just now joining us, our very first episode together, I made Sophia watch Jupiter Ascending, uh, yes, which I still have not atoned for. The second time <laughs> I made her watch Alien, uh, then my co-host Blue joined us for the Batman, which uh, was mm-hmm. kind of a mutual selection, mm-hmm. so I'm not counting it. It doesn't fit the space theme, but it yeah, was Yeah, that's not fun. within the same echelon of the, the red-only episodes are all space-themed. Yes. <laughs> yes, they're all space-themed. Uh, I promise I didn't plan this. It's just, you know, it just kind of happened. Um, now, the interesting thing about Dune is it's kind of um, a founding religious text for modern nerds. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was part of that, you know, mid-1900s, like, wave of spec fic and sci-fi, you know. Uh, Frank Herbert wrote Dune, but that was the era where you got Asimov, you got Larry Niven. You got just a lot of, the, like, the classic big names doing a lot of interesting world building about the possible right. futures of space travel. And uh, Dune is one of those that is very explicitly set in the extremely far future of Earth with, like, a few minor, like... Uh, elements of of just weirdness um and if you revisit those books a lot of things will jump out at you many of them bad uh but dune is what it is in the space of nerddom and fandom because dune's world building is intense uh and to do my due diligence and homework on this uh i got the audiobook for dune and I listened through the first half of it, the part that corresponds to the events of the movie, so that I could mm-hmm. compare what's going on. Because I right. read Dune when I was younger, but I was like 10. And I don't recommend Dune <laughs> now. <laughs> um, there's some good no. stuff in it. There's a lot of interesting moments. Uh, a lot of things that I think, a lot of moments in the movie that stood out more when I realized, oh, this is... This isn't just a little throwaway line. This is referencing something that was much bigger and took a lot more time in the books because the audiobook is 21 hours long. So, yes. like, let's let's not beat around the bush. Dune is really long <laughs> and a lot of it is very hard to get through. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that I will say is a lot of those classic sci-fi writers had one area that they were really good at and a lot of other areas that they were a little less good at. So Asimov, for instance, was incredibly good world building out the logistical side mm-hmm. effects of his three laws of robotics. Basically, every one of his stories was just like, hey, if we start from the premise that these rules are immutable and cannot be broken, 
what can still go wrong? Uh, so a lot of it is like solving <laughs> mysteries about how did this robot seem to still kill someone when the first rule is like, okay, do not do harm or through inaction allow harm to come to a human. So how did this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, but Asimov wasn't great at writing human characters, especially not female human characters, with the only exception being Susan Calvin. Uh, Larry Niven was really, really good at world building incredibly interesting concepts. He world built the Ring World concept in his series Ring World, which was then later popularized by Halo. Uh, but he was really bad at writing human characters. Uh, and he was really good at writing aliens, too. That was another thing. Uh, and Dune, Frank Herbert, was incredibly good at world building. And uh, all of his characters are people who have become... Turbo Chad mega geniuses through 10,000 years of eugenics and and complex mental training. And none of these people act like human beings. And we also get a constant look at their inner narration in the book, where basically every single one of them is constantly thinking, I am a roiling ball of emotions. And I, ooh, very nearly let that slip onto my actual actions and expression (laughs) there. Oh, good thing I stifled it like the good robot I am, basically. Mm -hmm. Um... And it's just a little baffling because uh, for all the effect and impact that Dune has had in this specific space, it wasn't until very recently that there was a mainstream adaptation of it that people who weren't huge nerds could actually enjoy. And I'm kind of curious yeah. to see how that works. has always sort of felt like nerd homework, um, which to put <laughs> yes. myself on blast for maybe being a bit of a fake nerd, I read about <laughs> one chapter of it five years ago and then I just couldn't keep going. So like many of the more, <laughs> more mainstream audience, this is... Other than the 1980s uh, movie, which is not what we're here to discuss. No, uh, but it'll come up anyway. I can it feel it. will certainly come up. I smell up. it in the air. Yeah. Uh, this is really my only exposure to it. Um, obviously, I feel like we should mention this top of the episode. This is part one of three planned movies. Probably. Um, I'd say with more to come if they dip into the sequels, of which mm-hmm. there are many. Increasingly but to cover stupid the, as time goes on. Yeah. To cover the original text of Dune, the book. Uh, this is, I believe, one of the first three. So it's not the entire plot of the novel. Um, Thank God. They could do it in oh, two, I think, if they if they did yeah. the same level of efficiency that they did with this. Uh, <laughs> something that took four and a half hours in the audiobook took one hour in the movie. So that's the rough mm. level of like compression we're dealing with. And a lot of stuff got rearranged. I'll get into that when we actually hit the summary. But yes. I was making notes on like, oh, this is conflating two scenes. They cut out one character and put in another so that they could do two things at once with this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, which makes the moments that are straight off the page, I think, a lot more powerful. Uh, but also highlights how little of the actual text of Dune <laughs> is necessary to communicate the point and plot of Dune. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, on that, why don't, we, why don't we jump into the plot here? Because there's a, a chunk in. of it to get through, even though this is the incomplete story. Uh, we open throat singing. Someone gives us a little bit of narration, which will be quite common. Dreams are Johnny. messages from the deep. It's Johnny, uh, as we'll yeah. learn. And uh, then we have they had the gall to go from that into logos. <laughs> as though we, it's like, and now the story will start in five minutes. And yep. uh, but we finally get past all of that. We jump into Zendaya, who is playing Johnny, as we'll learn, uh, whispering about Dune and how you can see spice in the air as the sun is low on the planet of Arrakis. Um, spice is the it's not quite a MacGuffin because it's a more tangible resource but it's the motivating force behind a lot of the plot device uh, yeah it's the the plot device political machinations in Dune yeah Um, Uh, one 
interesting bit of context about the fact that Chinese narration begins this movie is that in almost every other adaptation of Dune, uh, the beginning of the movie or the series is narrated by a character that we do not meet in Mm -hmm. the first chunk of Dune or for quite a while, uh, a princess, the daughter of the space emperor, who later marries the main character. And this parallels the structure of the book where every chapter is started with an excerpt from one of many books written by this woman in the far future about the events that are happening. So Mm. here's the thing. There is almost no tension about plot twists in this book because everyone's inner monologue is constantly exposing their innermost thoughts up to and including, ah, it sucks (laughs) that I have to betray all these people in roughly seven hours of narration. Ah, my my inner feelings are so complicated, but it's going to happen exactly like this. And also you get these things that are like, when the Duke Leto died, it was pretty crazy. And it's like eight chapters before that happens. And it's like, what is happening? (laughs) So, So starting the movie with Chani narrating instead... Is kind of an interesting, it's like a, it's an echo of these previous adaptations while simultaneously grounding us in the actual population of the planet of Arrakis, which is mm-hmm. kind of just used as a plot device in their own right. You know, they just basically, they get exploited for the spice, they get weaponized as an army, they kind of get, there's a bit of the, the white savior about a lot of the way mm-hmm. the book is structured, and we're not the first people to point that out. No. Uh, but starting with Chani's perspective and specifically her saying, I wonder who our next oppressors will be is like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, she like it's like the story is metatextually aware that it's been told before and will probably be told again. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and in the sequence, too, she kind of gives us the spark notes on how things have gone for the last 80 years on Arrakis, the Harkonnen. Yep. Great family has been in charge. They've been mining that spice. Uh, oh, yeah. con- there's just kind of constant sort of guerrilla warfare going on between the Fremen, who are the native population of this planet, and the Harkonnens and their dynasty or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, right at the beginning the, of the movie, the Harkonnens are all gone by order of the Emperor. So yes, I wonder who our next oppressors will be. <laughs> they got obscenely rich from mining spice. And then suddenly the Emperor is like, and now it's not your planet anymore. I'm going to give it to this yep. other great family. And they get yoinked out of the planet. We have to learn just a little bit about the local Dunians. I know the planet's called Arrakis, <laughs> but in my mind, it feels like it should be called Dune because it's covered in dunes. And that just this feels right. This book has existed <laughs> since the 60s. And I think I've never in my life heard someone use the word Dunians to describe what's happening. <laughs> if you're good name two characters in your book shit like paul and duncan idaho you might as well just call your planet dune i don't know why (laughs) we gotta loop back to this shit i think Um, dune is like the nickname but arrakis is like the proper like the legal name um i got no Um, excuse for duncan idaho though i think he just thought it sounded cool (sighs) he was like it's a placeholder and then i'll come up with a better name later and then he was like well i can't get rid of duncan idaho he's my boy he's my fave yeah that's the kind of moment you're like sitting in a writer's room you're like oh yeah i got it you know what we're going to call this guy in the sketch? Duncan Idaho. That'll Duncan really Idaho. get him, except it's a real character in a very serious story. Um, but this sequence comes to a close with uh, Zendaya pondering her oppressors to come. And uh, good old Timothée, <laughs> a.k.a. <laughs> Paul, awakens from his dream uh, in the year uh, 10,191. Oh, yes. Yeah. As the Chirons that I really... I go back and forth on whether I like uh, Chirons and title cards in movies because sometimes they can just kind of be a little bit too much of like putting too fine a point on the fact that we're transitioning and kind of an excuse for a wide shot. I really appreciated them here because I had no idea where anything was supposed to be in relation to each other. I think a few more of those scenes could have used Chirons, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it... Yeah, uh, this is... 
a much abridged and much compressed version of the story where a lot of things are rearranged to make the story overall make more mm-hmm. sense and flow better and the general explanation be a little bit better. Uh, because for, for years and years, Dune was considered unfilmable, not because it's particularly, like, not because the story is magically the one story that cannot be adapted to film, but just because mm-hmm. there's so fucking much of it. There's so yeah. much of Dune. And, like, the book gets through a lot of it by having constant inner narration so that, like, they don't need to have expository dialogue between two characters, though they frequently do regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a lot of we both know in the first few chapters of the book. And it's... <laughs> Um, <laughs> There's a lot of we both know in the first 30 minutes or so of this movie because they, oh, yeah. they're like, what if we did all of our set dressing now so that we can just look at, look at sandworms later? And yep. so this first half of the summary is going to be a little dense and then it's going to be like, and like there were 15 minutes of people flying around after this and now we can move yeah. forward in the film. But so what ends up happening in the book is that there's basically just like constant inner monologues that tell us every, mm-hmm. what, what all is going on. So there's almost no tension. And anytime the audience might be slightly confused about what everyone's thinking, what side are they on and what's happening, someone will be like, oh, no, let me clarify. I'm actually on your side on this. Or like <laughs> I, when I said I want a man dead, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about this other guy. God forbid we let the tension hang in the air for more than a sentence. <laughs> uh, but Obviously, inner monologue is a little bit gauche in movies for the most part. Uh, not that that stopped yeah. the 1984 adaptation, where that that's Ooh, the baby. bread and butter of that movie. Uh, but this one doesn't do that. This one has uh, no inner thoughts at any point. If a character wants to express their thoughts and feelings, they got to use their fucking words to do it. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Yes. Uh, and uh, Paul's been having these strange dreams. He's on Kaladin, the homeworld of the House Atreides, which is the house that is now tasked with taking over Arrakis. And they're on their very lush seaside homeworld situation. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes to breakfast with his mother, uh, who reminds him that he must be fully dressed up and on his best behavior as they've got a very important meeting coming up with some of the Emperor's crew uh, and demands that he practice using the voice, uh, which is our token nebulous sci-fi power for this series uh to come over and give her water it's interesting because uh the voice is like one of the things about dune that people know about it's the spice Mm -hmm. must flow the big sandworms some of the lines and uh the voice uh and it's it's famously rather difficult to adapt to screen because it's like well how do you auditorially communicate a magic compelling voice power. Well, you probably mm-hmm. filter the shit out of it, but how do you do that without it sounding stupid? Well, historically, you haven't been able to. Um, but when I was listening through the book, I was rather intrigued by the fact that the voice does not come up for hours. Like, this is <laughs> this is the primary, like, supernatural ability of the mm-hmm. Bene Gesserit space witches. Uh, and it just doesn't come up. She, like, reveals it in a big moment that, like, oh, I have the compelling voice power and I can bend you to my will, but I'm not going to because I'm a good guy. Uh, whereas the movie opens with, like, now, Paul, use the voice to make me give you this water glass, which is just, like, and the fact that Paul knows about the voice, is rather tired of practicing it, and isn't very good at it yet, is, like, this is jumping ahead in the book. In the book, we get a lot more of Paul before he even starts trying to imitate the voice. And there's so much, God, there's so much fucking stuff in this book. Oh, how are we ever going to get through this? Okay. <laughs> well, but talking about the movie. So uh, we the way they've chosen to make the voice sound in the movie uh, and they introduces to us is first they have this little wind chime sound cue. And I really was hoping that they would keep that going throughout all the other instances of the voice. But this is the only time we're getting those wind chimes. And yeah. then they sort of distort it in a way where it's very reverby and a little bassy uh, and just slightly offsets a few lines so that it, you get sort of a sense of like, this is not a normal speaking moment. Um mm-hmm. 
And it means that they can do like levels of it to indicate yeah. that Paul is better or worse at it by just, oh, you add a little reverb to show like there's a little hint of it, but then he doesn't quite nail it for a little while. Exactly. Uh, it's a good soundtrack. The sound in this movie is really good, just overall. Yeah, they do a good job of keeping the, the mix pretty consistent. Uh, I feel like now is as good a time as any to broach this subject. The first time I watched this movie was on an airplane. And um, I really think that that's how the filmmakers intended it to be seen. <laughs> but I did watch it uh, <laughs> at my home for this podcast. So oh, now I've seen it me. on a slightly larger screen with better uh, sound systems. But uh... <laughs> Yeah, the, the soundtrack is by Hans Zimmer. But mm-hmm. the one complaint that I have is that Hans Zimmer's uh, he's always operating at about like a 10. Uh, and the vocal delivery in this movie is giving you like two, three at most. So yeah. I had like my remote in hand. So whenever someone's talking, it's like, all right, crank the volume up like 30 notches so I can hear what's happening. And then it's like, oh, wait, is that a is that a hint of of power chords I hear? Quick, crank it down, crank it down. This is a good example of like why mixing and leveling and mastering is important. Uh, you can have your quiet moments and you can have your big booms, but you got to make sure that they're all within a reasonable range of levels. And sometimes when you mix something for a theater surround system of like 5.1, it mm-hmm. doesn't translate super well to home systems uh, that probably just have maybe two speakers or headphones. Uh, so- Hans Zimmer can strike without warning at any time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's sort of been the trend in a lot of blockbusters too recently is to do like very yeah. quiet and then we're going to get loud <laughs> and it's like guys please I'm begging you to just mix this a little <laughs> bit more evenly yeah. uh, but we don't need to dwell on it too much uh, this is you know kind of getting our rundown about what the voice is in the first little teaser of it the, we get introduced to the idea of the Bene Gesserit the mm-hmm. magical witch ladies of the space universe uh, whose skills take years to master whatever the fuck you know um, I will say this movie significantly toned down how much eugenics is in the book uh, it's like all all the eugenics. Um, there's still a fair amount left. There's in the still first some pretty hefty eugenics, but it's better than it was in the book. <laughs> uh, she asks after Paul's dreams, and he sort of is like, "Well, oh, you know, I haven't really seen Zendaya around recently. I know her name is Chani, <laughs> but every time I saw her, all I could think is, oh, yeah, that's Zendaya. Um, she, she does look very Zendaya esque in all of her roles. Yes. It's kind of like um, I saw Bullet Train recently, and uh, a lot of people went to see that movie because Bad Bunny was in it. And he's only really in like five minutes of it. Uh, and kind of similar when Dune came out, I remember there being a lot of people who were like, I'm going to go see Zendaya. And it's like, she's in maybe like 15 minutes total. <laughs> yeah, but they keep peppering her in to keep you <laughs> keep interested. Sprinkling her in like, no, just just you wait. Zendaya's yep. going to be in this movie, I promise. Yeah. I mean, the audacity of how this movie ends just tickles me to my very core. <laughs> but we'll get there eventually. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, Paul is reading up and studying on Arrakis, the Fremen, the locals of the planet, and all the sort of things that he should get a rundown of of this movie, and more importantly, the Chekhov Shai Halud of... This scene is so efficient. This scene communicates shit that took chapters in the book, because it's just like a little 3D, like, textbook that's just like mm-hmm. here's how the fremen walk in the desert or whatever and like yes. here's uh shai hulud etc etc and it's just giving you all the information you might need to know about the planet they're going to and this is not the order that you learn stuff in the book because you no. learn stuff from characters sitting in rooms and being like oh but tell me baron what are our plans oh well here are the exact nature of our plans but baron what if this thing happens ah well this is our contingency and then it plays out exactly as they describe it's like the cardinal sin of heist movies where like mm. if you explain the plan the plan it's cannot go, go as planned yeah <laughs> but no everything in the movie is people being like uh i am thinking or using my super crazy mentat mind powers to calculate that this thing will happen and then they're correct like a hundred percent of the time so there's yeah, no surprises I'm, I'm glad they're planting some of the like 
a little bit I mean it's a sci-fi movie it's it's an epic it's meant to have some things in it that are gonna be a little fantastical I'm glad they planted like the sand walk early on so that when people start doing it the first time I'm not like you gotta walk me through this a little bit they plant the the sandworms and they kind of give us some background on the um the Fremen and I'm just saying that my notes it corrected spice to Spielberg's, but their <laughs> their well, relationship. Which of those things on average do you write about more? <laughs> well, the sandwalk. From what I remember, because I kept waiting for them to introduce it in the book. Is like walk without rhythm is like one of the one of the memes. You know, one of the things the nerds yeah. love about this book. But like. No. It doesn't come up until Paul's in the desert and he's like, hold on, mother, my super brain powers have figured out a way to walk in the desert. He just figures it out. And it's like it does. It does help sort of like weed off the wait, where is this element coming from this of the movie in that they do so much exposition very efficiently in these first 30 minutes or so. I will Uh, say if you if if you watch from the specific perspective of like, what did they change from the book? You will notice the number of like little dialogue lines that have been added in that feel like they are very specifically like (laughs) closing plot holes from the book or stitching things together. Mm. There's a couple bits where a character will be like, oh, hey, you know me from like this thing that happened. So we recognize each other. Whereas the corresponding scene in the book is like the characters acting like they've never met before. And then the scene (laughs) takes way longer than it should. And it's just, Uh. I love those little moments or, or like, there's a bit later where Duke Leto like spends like 30 seconds being like, oh, if only we had more time. I, I just didn't think it would play out like this. And it's like, it didn't. It was different in the book. You got it, man. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we learned that the spice is sacred to the, the Fremen. Um, but for the Empire or whatever the big bad space Imperium is, uh, spice is critical for space travel. So they have a very uh, faith versus science situation going on. Yeah. It lets them find safe paths through space. Yeah. It's like they already have FTL worked out, but I guess the risk of slamming into a star was always there before they discovered mm-hmm. Arrakis and the spice. And they're like, well, if we take enough of this crazy space cocaine, we can like see the universe. <laughs> so, yeah, they don't really lay out that part of the world mm-hmm. building for some strange reason. God knows I we think, had enough time. I think maybe it's for the best that we didn't need to, <laughs> we don't need to dwell on that. Given how Powerless. little actual space travel we see relative to the amount of time we're going to spend uh, amongst the dunes. Um, speaking of space travel, though, a big egg-shaped ship lands on the planet. And from inside, many important-looking people exit. Um, it's an imperial brigade of court folks here to do official business. Uh, Paul yep. and his parents, one of whom is Oscar Isaac. And as we'll learn, his name Leto, <laughs> but more importantly, is Oscar Isaac. It's Oscar. He's very Oscar Isaac in this movie. He's got a big oh, beard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love to this see movie, it. in part, is a love letter to the male form. And uh, <laughs> I know some people who appreciate it. <laughs> uh, they all stand on ceremony as this procession approaches and declares that at the decree of the emperor, the members of the imperial court and one a sister of the Bene Gesserit, uh, House Atreides is granted immediate control of the planet Arrakis and do they accept of course they do Oscar's like yep and they all chant Atreides which was in all the trailers so this part I was like I know what we're doing here Um, the funny thing is this scene isn't even in the book like it has to have happened but Mm -hmm. it happened in the past of the book so by showing it on screen this allows them to cover a lot of ground very efficiently rather than having to have two characters in a room standing opposite each other and explaining that it happened crazy how that works there are many changes in the movie that are essentially that just showing yeah. us something that we heard about secondhand later in the book mm-hmm. they also bring uh signet rings back in this scene which i was like oh, hell, hell yeah. yeah i want to sign all my legal documents by sticking a ring into some wax everyone fucking loves signet rings i think that we should all have signet rings you know yeah do you ever think about like what your symbol on the signet ring would be 
Oh, overthinked immensely at times, but I don't have a good one right now. <laughs> uh, I will also say that uh, because of this specific scene and a couple others, certain characters are shown on screen a lot earlier than they are introduced physically mm-hmm. in the book. Like Duke Leto is obviously referenced a lot in the book, uh, but it's a while before he and Paul get a chance to spend any time together. And the impression right. is that Leto is a little bit distant and very busy. And they're all so emotionally stunted and like married <laughs> to statecraft that none of them talk like human beings. And Paul's supposed to be 14 in the book. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> oh, the audience won't catch that facial expression, Ooh. but I saw it. <laughs> It's like, yeah. it would have been a lot funnier if every time he had to use the voice, he was also dealing with his voice cracking. I just think that would have really added to the texture of the yeah. movie. Um, but Leto showing up early so that we can actually, like, see him, get a feel for him, see the loyalty he inspires in his men. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I will say that Leto gets a bit of the uh, beautiful dad, too good for this sinful world treatment in this movie. In Big the book, Mufasa he's a- energy coming from Leto in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. In the book, he's a little bit more stern. I don't want to make this whole thing just like, well, in the book they did this. But it's just interesting to me what they changed to make this movie work. Because, frankly, I think it's uncontroversial to say that this movie is a more enjoyable experience than the book. Uh, and pulls it off without losing anything I think is too important from the book. And there are some pretty major changes in this first half of the movie uh, that I will get into when we get them, but they're mostly things that were left out that I think belonged on the cutting room floor. Uh, But (laughs) Leto gets a lot of his kind of hard edges softened. Uh, He's... There's a few parts of his character that are left out that would have been weird to leave in, but they were basically just the parts of him where he was like, I'm very dedicated to statecraft i absolutely must present these public images there's a bit Mm -hmm. where he and paul are talking about how he's so beloved and paul's like oh yeah well you know everyone's loyal to you everyone loves you and he's like yes my propaganda department is the best in the universe that doesn't mean i'm actually like a great dude uh none of that in the movie he's genuinely just a great dude um i think that that does at least for this movie help bridge just some of the time gaps and things we got to get through like as much as i want to know leto's deal i also kind of want to move past him because he could not have more death flags going on and i'm like i don't know how long (laughs) you're gonna be really relevant to this story yeah they just keep throwing him in and then he starts peppering in more for flavor and it's like he's giving like really deep speeches about like secession and everything almost Um, none of them are in the book and i love it we'll get to it But we later, this is where maybe some Chirons could have helped zoom in on a much flatter ship. And as it lands in the hangar, uh, Duncan Idaho emerges. Duncan Idaho! Jason Momoa himself. (laughs) At his absolute hairiest. I just love this for him. (laughs) His beard fluctuates in this movie, but I think this is the most beardy he gets. Uh, And then he, like, reduces the beard over time. Um, Duncan Idaho is, he's, he's like the best part of the books and he's infinitely better in the movies uh but also you can like you can hear the difference between the dialogue that's straight off the page and the dialogue that's like new for the movie because Mm -hmm. the stuff that's new for the movie is people being like you good or like (laughs) well first off i'm not gonna die uh it it's got like just the slightest hint of the mcu quipping in it just a little just just a a smidge smidge. there's none of that oh he's right behind me isn't he they don't undercut any of the deep moments with that Mm -hmm. shit but like the stuff from the book is like what's mood to do with it uh let me recite poetry at you while we spar and then you know when people talk like actual human beings you can assume that that yeah. was invented for the screen there's a moment where like duncan gets off of a ship i forget if it's this or later on on, on arrakis when he's like oh paul you've gotten so much taller and paul's like yeah you smell bad and it's like yeah that's <laughs> definitely not in the book i feel like that is new dialogue i could clock. the dialogue <laughs> is new the fact is in the book it is canon that wearing a still suit makes you smell like wet butt crack <laughs> it's just i there are so many little 
little quips where it's like, hey, that's a thing from the book, made infinitely more charming by just turning it into like a quip of like a little bit of dialogue rather than half a page of exposition. Crazy how that works. But yes, Duncan mm-hmm. Idaho, best boy. Yes, he's so best fun boy. and rugged. He's here, he gives Paul a big old hug and he talks about how he's off to Arrakis tomorrow with the advance team. And Paul wants to tag along, but Duncan's like, no, no, no. Uh, what's got well, you know, what's got this idea in your head and Paul's like I've been having dreams of Arrakis and the Fremen and I saw one where you died and Duncan's like hey buddy I'm not gonna die which means First he's off, doomed I'm not gonna die. and yeah. uh, <laughs> Paul he cannot tells, stop having his father figures die in front of him <laughs> and then he keeps, tells uh, Paul that everything important happens when he's awake which seems to be in direct contradiction to everything else he's ever been told his entire life uh, mm-hmm. and then he took a moment to mock Paul for being a twig man which I noted down yeah because he's like oh I put on some muscle and Paul's like really and he goes no which <laughs> is great we love Duncan. He's so much more lovable than, um this is yeah. just our quick introduction to him and leaving and setting up that he's probably not going to survive this movie this is much earlier than we ever see him in the book he again exists in the background mm-hmm. the fact that he's a liaison with the fremen is established but we just don't see him for a while i think until they get to arrakis they just don't meet him and even then it's like oh hey that's duncan idaho he's great i really like him he uh yeah he's like got a human being personality it's crazy and then like we see him like three more times um yeah yeah um now we go to paul and his brooding trench coat as he walks around his family graveyard to meet with his father and have a deep conversation about secession and things like that uh paul once again asks he'll be let to go to arrakis early but is once again denied as he's the future of house atreides and he has to be by his father's side to learn statecraft and things like that mm-hmm. um and he kind of just exposes like hey we're gonna face great political danger when we get to arrakis because you know it's not great that we're taking over this like wealthy mining colony or whatever but uh we're, there's just so many people gunning for us. I think maybe the Emperor is sending us there to like be at odds with the Harkonnens. Uh, and my goal is to make an alliance with the Fremen. I want to cultivate desert power. And they keep saying desert power throughout this movie, and I couldn't take it seriously, not once. It's because it's from the book. That's why it's stupid. <laughs> it's so dumb. I will also say that while a meeting between Paul and his father happens around this point in the book, if you ignore the fact that they've kind of shuffled things around so characters get introduced earlier, uh, the exact content of their conversation has nothing in common with what they talk about in this scene. Uh, because there are a number of world-building elements, mostly very transhumanist things that are ex- present in the book that aren't really explained in the movie. There are sort of like, there's visual world-building. So uh, one of the um, guys who works for Duke Leto, uh, Thufir Howat, uh, the really old guy with like the mark on his lip, mm-hmm. uh, the mark on his lip is meant to signify, because we see it on a few other people, that he is a mentat, which is basically a human computer. Because in the far backstory of this setting, there was an AI revolution. They mm. made AIs, and the AIs rose up in revolt, and they killed all of them. And they made it like a religious decree that you must never, ever make a robot or a computer that can mimic a human's like functionality and thought. So instead, they take babies, and they brainwash them from birth to be really, really good at math. And then they use those as their computers, and those are called mentats. It's ridiculous. The conversation that Paul and Leto have, uh, either here or later in the book, is essentially Paul revealing, or Leto revealing to Paul that they have been secretly training Paul as a mentat, uh, and there's a point in the training where the person has to be told, hey, you're, we're training you as a mentat and you're, you're pulling it off, do you want to keep doing this? Like, they mm-hmm. have to become aware of it at some point. And Paul's like, oh, I can't be a mentat, you must start training from birth, and wait a minute. Uh, and then, so basically... As, and there's like a little casual note where they're like, oh, those primitive machines of hundreds of years ago, even you, my Baron, can outcalculate it. And it's like, so every single one of these people is like a turbo genius thinking computer. 
and this never comes up in the movie because it's fucking stupid. <laughs> this is a yeah. stupid thing to do. A good example of sometimes an adaptation, maybe you don't need to include no, everything no. from the book. But as a side note, the conversation that Paul has with Leto, where Paul's like, you know, what if this isn't my destiny? What if I can't be like the Duke? What if that's not my thing? And then Leto is like, look, you know, no matter what, you'll always be the only thing I ever needed you to be, my mm-hmm. son. That's uh, the book version of Leto would have never said that. Yes. <laughs> that's not true. It's all about the politics and the power plays and the bloodlines and the lineages and shit like that. Uh <laughs> And the thing about Leto having been like, oh, I had the same thing. I wanted to be a pilot. That's definitely just a cheeky little Star Wars I reference. That's not from the that book down. either. I'm like, there's no way they had Oscar Isaac say, I never wanted to, I wanted to be a pilot, not a leader. And they weren't like, this will really get them. Yeah, yeah. That was straight in the movie. And I thought it was great. I think that everything that makes this scene work is uh, stuff that's not at all in the book and wouldn't have made any sense in the context of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, proving that sometimes the best adaptation is not the most faithful adaptation. Hell um, yeah. But uh, yes, this is when he's really giving beautiful dad too good for the sinful yeah. world to pure energy because it's like, oh, I don't need you to be super good at politics or like run some kind of crazy space cult just to I pull just an example out of my ass. I need you to be my son. My it's son. like there's no it's way like, you're making it out of this movie alive, Oscar Isaac. Wouldn't it be funny if he did though? Like if he was just actually okay? <laughs> the just, last like, shot of the movie is just like a hand rising out of the sand. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar Isaac will return in Dune part two. <laughs> I'm frankly shocked Duncan Idaho didn't do that at the end of the movie. Um, I mean, well, uh, you haven't read the books, right? So, no. <laughs> well, spoiler alert, in later books, Duncan Idaho does get cloned a whole bunch. <laughs> Great. I love that for him. <laughs> so we leave this deep conversation with father figure number two that we've been introduced to to get slight father figure number three in the combat training when uh, Gurney walks in to Paul with some swords and is like, hey, Duncan left for Arrakis. We got to do some weapons training and introduce people to the main combat system of these movies. Uh, yes. Paul seems uninterested in the moment, but Gurney's not having it. Uh, it's practice time, baby. So they put on the dune shields that deflect fast <laughs> attacks, but let through the slow ones, which is a cool bit of world building because it means that the combat has to be very like intentional and which that reads well on screen. Um, yeah. I mean, it's easier to write than I think it is to choreograph because there are a number of fight scenes in the movie where you're like, that was an awfully fast impact that pierced that shield. The more enemies they add into a given fight scene, I feel like the less they care about the shield rule. But for this first initial scene and for some of the more like one-on-one situations, I think it does read okay on camera. I will also say that this scene conflates two different scenes from the book. Uh, So Gurney Halleck is character in the book, obviously. Uh, In the movie, he's played by Josh Brolin. In the book, he's like He's simultaneously the character of this, like, grizzled sword master, weapons master type, but he's also, like, the the local bard. So when uh, when Paul says, like, give us a song, Gurney, it sounds like a joke because this guy's so ridiculously, like, grizzled and stoic. But in the, in the book, bar. he's actually got, like, a sense of humor. <laughs> he's always cracking jokes and singing little ditties and having a good time, pulling out his lute, basically. Yeah. Uh, and the first half of this where he walks in and Paul is sitting with his back to the door and is like, hey, you don't sit with your back to the door, bro. Uh, that is a transplant from a different character, the character of Thufir Hawat, the Mentat, the old guy. Uh, mm. He was supposed to be, because he's like a master assassin in the books on top of all the other <laughs> shit, because that's what we needed. Less right. reason to be able to relate to any of these people. But he walks in and he sees Paul sitting with his back to the door and Paul's like, I know I'm sitting with my back to the door. And he's like, ah, uh, he heard me coming in because... This whole thing's like a fucking, like, Yu-Gi-Oh duel where you're always getting in the person's head and it's like, oh, he knows I know he knows, but what if he knows I know he knows I know, or whatever. Um, So they basically just conflated that and they gave them both as roles to Gurney. Uh, And there was a couple moments in this scene that I thought were really good because they 
again, they sort of like tapped into a little wellspring of lore that you know from the books, but if you don't know it, it doesn't break anything. Uh, mm-hmm. Because Gurney very clearly has a serious grudge against the Harkonnens. He's like livid with them. He gets very like violently angry uh, when he says that they are, you know, like you don't understand them like I do. They're brutal. Uh, and if you are an eagle-eyed viewer, you might guess that this has something to do with the crazy-ass scar he has on his face. <laughs> that maybe that has something to do with why he hates the Harkonnens so much. And uh-huh. you'd be right. In the lore of the book, uh, he and his sister, I believe, were like enslaved and like tortured by the Harkonnens mm. and his sister died. Uh, and there's a one of the only times I liked the inner monologue use is that at one point he's like, uh, I think daisies were her favorite flower or maybe it was marigolds. And I don't like that. I can't remember. And it's mm. just like this odd little subdued, like heartbreaking nugget of tragedy in the middle of this otherwise fairly lighthearted guy uh, with the crazy ass scar. <laughs> um, yes. So. There's good stuff in this, and among other things, showing how the shields work. Uh, a lot of the dialogue of the fight is straight off the page, which is why it sounds a little bit weird. Um, but the choreography of the fight is exactly how it's supposed to go, and the the unique fighting style you have to develop when a strong, quick attack won't get through, but a slow, deliberate one will, mm-hmm. and the, the ways that you defend yourselves that way. It's interesting. Again, it's easier to write a fight like that than it is to visually choreograph it, especially yeah. when all the stunt people are not used to... The fact that this is a weird method of fighting is acknowledged in-universe, and that it throws you off if you're fighting without shields is... It's just interesting. Yeah. Uh, and basically the gist of this fight, too, is that uh, Gurney tells Paul that Arrakis is owned by the Harkonnens, a brutal family, and now that they don't own it, he has to be ready for them to strike back as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, we then go to Getty Prime, the homeworld of the Harkonnens. Chiron's are back, baby. And Dave Bautista, a.k.a. Rabin, uh, approaches a room full of bald people and <laughs> <laughs> he addresses... Not a scrap of hair on that entire not, planet. Uh one. <laughs> he addresses the Lord Baron, reporting of the exit from Arrakis, uh, and clearly frustrated at their loss of such an important holding. And the Harkonnen leader explains to him that the Emperor is really actually jealous of the Atreides, and that's why he gave them Arrakis, so that they'd have an excuse to attack the Atreides and get revenge, and they'd take out a problem for him. So it's all cyclical. This scene is actually another situation where they conflate two different scenes. Uh, so uh, the character that Dave Bautista is playing, Robin, is uh, the Baron's nephew. Uh, mm. The Baron has two nephews uh, in the book. And in fact, one of them is a very important character who's going to have to be introduced in part two, because otherwise this isn't really going to make sense. Uh, if you've watched the 1984 version, that character <laughs> is played by Sting. Uh, yes. Fade Rautha is uh, the Baron's young, beautiful nephew who's kind of like a dark reflection to Paul. They're about the same age. They're very similarly clever uh, and like constantly paying attention, but in a sort of like disconnected, not really quite getting it way. Mm-hmm. So in the book, this conversation is between the Baron and uh, the creepy, the the other the, the Baron's mentat, uh, the, the bald guy, Piotr yes. or something like that. Uh they're having the conversation, and Fade Rautha is also there because the Baron is using this to, like, teach him some statecraft. So it is nonstop exposition for, like, a full ten minutes of just, like, oh, well, we're doing this. Oh, but my Baron, what if we do this? Ah, well, you see, the Emperor's hanging out with us, yeah. so we're going to do that. Uh, you're paying attention, Fade Rautha? Yes, Uncle. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. So I think that this was a much better approach. Uh, they bring in Robin, who's actually important in this arc because he's basically the Harkonnen who's, like, actually in charge of dune and was yeah, in charge of dune the boots before. on the ground you know? yeah he's the guy who's like running the actual military uh mm-hmm. whereas so the the plan behind the plan that is explained so many times in the book but not mentioned in the movie 
is that the Baron has Robin essentially be absolutely brutal on the ground, and then he's going to bring in Fade Routha as like, oh, this is the much better option. Wouldn't you want to give all your loyalty and like fealty to right. this guy? You hate us, but he's nice, and he's so much better than Robin. Uh, but since so that that's character why... doesn't exist in the movie, it's sort of... It's well, it just, doesn't well, exist just... yet. Uh, yeah. He's going to have to be introduced. Either that or they're going to use Robin as sort of just the generic, like... Mm-hmm the face of the bad guys, which they could do, but I think it would yeah. be an odd oversight because Fadroth is so important in the book. Yes. Um, but we leave the scene once we get the plot explained to us and that plot will be repeated a few different times from a few different characters from slightly different angles. But uh, this is again where the Chirons could have been important to come back because mystical voices chant as the Bene Jesuit ship arrives uh, on Kaladin. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and Paul's mother does some magical ladies things, rousing him from sleep to get dressed in the middle of the night. Uh, and she explains that the Reverend Mother of the Bene Gesset, the League of Magical Ladies, is here. Uh, the highest the of, the, of the Bene ladies. ladies. That's basically what they are. And uh, yeah. she wants to meet Paul to know about his dreams and all of his magical abilities that he's been training for his whole life. And before they go off to uh, meet with her, Dr. Yue checks his vitals and in Mandarin explains that the Bene Gesset serve uh, not only the greater good, but their own devices. So to be careful. Uh, and his Mandarin is pretty good for... Uh, oh. <laughs> Him and uh, Paul, although he speaks very few words, I'll give him yes. credit for that. Um, this scene they... is almost exactly straight off the page, except that Dr. Yue wasn't originally part of it, but they bring him in because he's extremely important. And uh, in the book, they just kind of keep popping over to his perspective while he's like, oh, it totally sucks that I'm going to have to spoiler, 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 spoiler. Uh, so in this one, they were like, what if we incorporated him at a reasonable time where it would make sense for him to show up? Because Lady Jessica is incredibly stressed about what's about to happen to her son and wants to make sure that he's like in good health for it. So that made sense. That was a good change that tied together two disparate things and made the story more mm-hmm. cohesive. Um, yes. Um, and the uh, addition of the, the the sign language communication, yes. not in the book, but it's brilliant for the movie because the number of times where you get the character's inner monologue being like, if only I could communicate this thought to this other person, they could just be like, hey, I'm going to do a sneaky little hand sign and now yes. you know exactly it's what the I'm advantage of a visual medium over the book is that you can show these things. Uh, not that you can't put sign language into a book successfully, but it feels a little bit more seamless when you can see the sign language happening, but it's how Paul and his mother will frequently communicate in situations where they can't speak out loud, this being one of them. It makes them seem smarter and better prepared that Mm -hmm. they would like, oh yeah, we know all the languages, but also we have a method of communication just in case we can't speak. Yeah. Uh, But he enters the drawing room and the spooky voice commands him uh, using the voice uh, to approach her. It is the Reverend Mother and she tells him to put his right hand in an ominous box and then holds a poison needle to his neck and she's like, you can't remove your hand. You're just going to feel a lot of pain. Uh, because if you remove your hand, I will murder you with this insta-death needle. Uh, and I want to see what Paul do, you, Paul, do when you're caught in a trap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this uh, this is straight out of the book with about 95% of it removed. <laughs> because the entire time that he's got his hand in the box and she's got the needle to his neck, like, in, in the movie, it's a very efficiently choreographed scene. And in the book, he will not stop asking follow-up questions and she will not stop answering them. <laughs> At one point, she tells him to uh, not talk, and I feel like that, that was just the movie being like, absolutely not, we're ending this exactly. now. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that was basically the movie being like, we're not doing that shit. We're going yeah. to be quick and efficient about this, and I but love the, it. I love that the movie was self-aware. Yeah, the box causes him pain in the way that like pain happens in movies where people are just like, oh, I'm just going to shake a bunch, and we'll make this buzzing <laughs> sound happen in the background. Um, yeah, again, it's good sound design. You, you like, it, it communicates. Shifts. It's yeah. like it's kind of movie shorthand for like, and now someone is feeling a pain that we can't. Like, there's no physical indication of otherwise. Um, but compared to the 1984 version, straight up masterpiece. I mean, come on. Where <laughs> I mean, if you're comparing like, oh. anything to the 1984 <laughs> Dune, that's a low bar to clear. 
I'm just saying, it's inevitable. But like in that one, he's like, oh, I can feel horrible things happening to my hand in his like inner monologue. And then like we get like a pretty good like David Lynch visual of like a fucked up wax hand like melting. And it's like, oh, that would be bad. Yes. Um, um, yeah. His but mother like, uh, cries for him outside the door and she does a speech about like mastering pain and moving beyond it. And... The litany, be- litany against fear. It's the other thing that the Dune nerds love. Yes. Uh, so I'm glad that they kind of put it right mm-hmm. at the beginning because that's when she recites it in the book but you know yeah um, and as she recites it paul masters his fear and makes eye contact with the reverend and eventually she ends the test uh he removes his hand and backs away because he just had his hand in a pain box for a while and she explains <laughs> that the bene needed to know if he could control his impulses because he is jessica's son and she's been training him in the way and it's not yeah, just that, that part yeah that that part's a little bit new from the book because uh, at the begin in the book she explains her whole motive for this like before the test and basically it's like she's got this whole thing about how some people are people but some people are animals and it depends on how they react under stress uh, so basically the movie version is like the book version but with way less of the weird eugenics <laughs> shit so basically yeah. uh, they've been like sieving humanity by mm-hmm. eliminating the people that can't control their impulses which is certainly an interesting concept for this sci-fi yeah. specific future to explore. There's a lot more like bloodlines and selective breeding and good genetic stock in the book. Uh, there's hints of it in the movie, mm-hmm. but it's severely toned down. Yeah. Um, uh, it's also at this point that the Reverend asks about his dreams and Paul explains the girl he's been seeing on Arrakis and that he's dreamt of her many times. And at that point, rather than explaining to us why she cares, she takes her leave, telling him that she hopes he lives. There's two things about that uh so in one of the things that she asks is do you often dream things that then happen just as you dreamed them mm-hmm. and he says not exactly in the book he says yes uh this is because the bene Gesserit having like prophetic dreams of the future is like an established power but one of the things about the thing that they think paul might be is that this is a being that will transcend the ability to see one future and may be able to see many futures and mm. change them and Paul is already having dreams of, like, things that don't quite play out as he thought they would. Uh, and we learn more about this later, because right now we've only ever seen him dreaming about Chani. Uh, yeah. And a little bit about Duncan Idaho. But it, even then, it's like, well, he's not dead yet, so something's so working. I guess it's fine. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting little shift in the timeline for when he starts developing what mm-hmm. abilities exactly. Um, yeah. And the other thing uh, is that what she says, uh, goodbye, young human, I hope you live, is straight off the page. Uh, And she says that because in her speech, her extremely lengthy one that isn't in the movie, her specific comparison is that some people are people, some people are animals. An animal Mm. caught in a trap will chew off its own leg to escape, but a human caught in a trap will, like, be sneaky by their time. You know, they'll they'll tolerate the pain until they can get their revenge. So basically, if you pull your hand out of the box, even though you know you'll die, you're no better than an animal. But, okay, she's like, okay, you are human. Great. And all the stuff about being like, you inherit too much power. You're Jessica's son. I had to... None of that. No. Mm. None of that is at all the case. She's just like, I wanted to be sure. She's a little bit more whimsical and mischievous in the book. A bit more of a shits and giggles type. They're very... The Benny Jesuit are pretty much immediately... You get introduced to them and they're like, this is a very ominous and sinister group of women who are trying to pull all the strings behind all political machinations in this universe is the vibe that you get. Um, Yeah. And her and Jessica have a much more complicated dynamic in the book yeah. because Jessica when she was like at the Bene Gesserit school for space witches uh, she like served as the the like reverend mother's like handmaiden yeah I think in the film years. she just has like a throwaway line of like oh this is the woman who trained me so I yeah know, exactly know but like her. she's got a very sort of like I remember so much like fear and like 
upset and hate and misery, but also like she's kind of the only thing, like the closest thing to a mother I've ever known. There's mm-hmm. a big deal in the book made about the fact that Jessica's parentage isn't known and this is rare but not unheard of for Bene Gesserit. It means she's from good genetic stock, but they didn't want her to know what it was. Again, good genetic stock is the name of the game with the Bene Gesserit, and it's just so yeah. weird. And the you movie's get kind of hints not. of that as the Reverend returns to her ship and berates Jessica for not only having daughters as she was commanded. And I'm like, my dude, you do not have control over that uh, well that's but. the thing the Bene Gesserit like the, the oh, some of the transhumanist shit from the book is the idea that like with precise brain control you can understand and control the, the finest details of how mm-hmm. your body works uh, and they do a good job of kind of show don't telling the fact that like the Bene Gesserit and Paul and some of the other people have basically very superhuman abilities uh, I mean the voice just by its nature mm-hmm. is like okay people can't do that so what the fuck is up but like they, they sort of try and like pseudoscience and explanation of like I find the exact pitch and timber that will resonate with their mind and then I, I use it on yeah. them I, I use my, my Sherlock scan brain powers to be able to understand everything and it's like this is some hot bullshit but I kind of believe that everyone here is operating on like at least the Bene Gesserit some of their crazy training allows them to do right crazy like okay yeah you can Um, feel hey there's a little more going on downstairs than usual I guess I'm pregnant and I'm going to use my my psychic mind powers to filter what exactly reproductive material gets where it's going I guess and you get the inclination that Jessica did that intentionally because she's like I'm standing fast in this I think my son could be the chosen one which is that was the big takeaway from that scene but the spooky ladies do exit she left. also uh, had a son specifically because the Duke Leto really, really wanted a son, and she gave mm-hmm. him a son. Uh, but it's a no-no because a man who, with Bene Gesserit training and powers, could be so much greater than any... <sighs> One of the other things this movie toned down on is the weird gender shit. <laughs> there are hints of it, but it's much less mm-hmm. bad than it is in other places. Yeah, uh, but when the spooky ladies leave, Paul asks his mother what she meant by he could be the one, and she sort of explains the, like the whole Bene Gesserit, Gesserit steer politics from the shadows and we've been carefully crossing bloodlines to bring forth a mind powerful enough to break space and time and we think yep. he's close now some even believe he's here she means Paul that's sort of the hint of the eugenics stuff that we get in this movie yeah that, that's all we get it's much worse in the book because it kind of Seems like it thinks that this could actually happen, uh, which was like a nope. 60s sci-fi thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, this is not at all how anything works. Uh, but the idea that uh, basically the Bene Gesserit have been trying to create essentially an heir who can, you know, sort of see through space and time mm-hmm. to a better future and then lead people into it rather than just seeing the future as it is. Like, that's an interesting concept. And they've also been dropping little hints that like the Bene Gesserit have been sort of dropping little things in other civilizations around the galaxy that are like hey there's a prophecy of a chosen one that'll come someday and it's yeah, not that this is magical arrakis it's like yeah the bene Gesserit yeah. have been at work here that's why all of these the locals are like no to chant yeah exactly Chai-Halud it's, or whatever. Not Chai-Halud, it's not some like magical profound prophecy from nowhere it's actively a prophecy that's being created mm-hmm. and maintained by the people who are trying to yeah. multi-generationally breed the chosen one to fulfill it but Later down the line, not anything that happens in the movie, but something that does happen in the 1984 version, it becomes pretty clear that the chosen one they've bred is too powerful for any of them to control, and he's actually going to take advantage of all this, so he's not just a figurehead or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's fine. You know what? It's yep. fine. It was the 60s. Uh, but yeah. And we don't have too long to dwell on that because we have to watch another spaceship. This one's trapezoid-shaped emerge from the water as the Atreides pack their things. This time, it's finally ready to head to Arrakis. Uh, I love Paul- all the notes about the <laughs> shapes of these ships. 
they just they're very distinct like they look like any generic sci-fi shit but also not a single one of them was the same shape as the others um paul touches water for what will be the last time in a good freaking while and they uh head to arrakis (laughs) i will say that uh an entire subplot from the book is completely gone and good fucking riddance to it uh they get wind that there is a spy or a traitor in the house um and they spend way too long infighting over who it is uh yeah and that's fact, a good thing to cut because like there is a spy or traitor in the house as i'm sure people have guessed with yes. such a political machinations but you don't necessarily need to dwell on that in this movie is it at this no. point like it's just assumed that something bad is going to happen when they get to arrakis and we don't need to spend too long trying to figure it's not about the who done it it's more it's the not about what the happens after inevitably everything goes to shit everyone kind of knows that everything's going to be fucked because they know how the harkonnens work mm-hmm. but um the frustration that i mostly had with that subplot is that uh Everyone dismisses the actual traitor offhand as like, oh, well, there's no possible way that that one could be subverted because of imperial conditioning, mm-hmm. which doesn't get further explanation. And then it turns out it's super easy to subvert. You would just take their loved one hostage. And the fact that none of these turbo chad mega geniuses thought of that idea is just straining the limits of suspension of disbelief. Yeah. So instead, the person they all suspect is Jessica. And it's stupid. There's a bit in the book that I'm so glad they dropped where Duncan Idaho gets, like, drunk and spills the beans that he thinks Jessica's a Harkonnen spy and she's really mad about it. And it's like, I can't believe they do my boy Duncan Idaho dirty like that. Yeah, I uh, think it's for the best that some things were left out of the movie. Uh, many things, I would say. Yes. Um, but yes. So that whole thing's gone. And as a result, the, sh- the plot's a little bit of a different shape to sort of compensate mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, so they arrive uh, on Arrakis and they do a dramatic procession to their their city. Um, and for some ungodly reason, this procession is led by bagpipes, which then means bagpipes! that every time we hear the bagpipes in the soundtrack, you have to assume it's diegetic from that point forward. Um, I love the bagpipes. I'm so glad they're <laughs> And it's there. just the one guy. It's just the one just bagpiper. One <laughs> he walks out it's... first and then he lets everyone go in front of him. <laughs> Well, it's a little bit jarring, but I love it because one of the things that it's easy to forget about Dune is that it's supposed to be set in the far future of us. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's the year 10,000-something, and it's supposed to be our future. And these little hints of, like, remnants of things from the old world, there's a there's this thing that is a running theme with the House of Atreides, which is bullfighting. Uh, Leto's father, the previous duke, was a full-on matador, and in the book it's established that he was, and, and it's hinted at in the movie, that he was killed by a bull uh, during, like, a bullfighting thing that should have gone fine for him. He was gored, and they, like, they mounted the bull's head, and they, like, sprayed a fixative on it so the blood would never <laughs> go away, and they were like, let's use this as a reminder of something, I guess. Um, and just all these little, like, old-world relics of things that we recognize, bullfighting, bagpipes. I kind of love that they're still used in this 8,000 years in the future space future. Because it sort of, it, it, I guess, betrays the humanity underneath all the weird transhumanists, like, you know, we're all going to be supercomputers in the future, kind of kind of weird shit. Uh, so I love the bagpipes, and I'll defend them with my life. I accept them as part of the things I must go through to watch Dune. Uh, Paul rushes up to give his buddy uh, Thufir uh, Hulat a hug. This is the computery Thufir guy Hulat. we were mentioning yeah. earlier and uh, talks about, you know, how the advanced team has secured the city. So we get the sense that, like, everything is being stamped down for their arrival. And uh, as they walk in, many people are shouting uh, Lisan al-Ghalib at Paul. Gaib at Paul. There's so many words in this movie. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fucking words. The reason that they've all gathered is that there's an old Harkonnen rule about mandatory attendance to greeting people when they arrive on the planet, specifically the ruling family or whatever. Uh, but 
Paul's mother's like, actually, they're shouting Messiah at you. It's very important. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, and one thing that's interesting is that uh, Paul does not like that the Bene Gesserit have planted this prophecy mm-hmm. here and that they think he's fulfilling it. He doesn't like that, essentially, these people are being tricked into viewing him as some kind of chosen one savior. Uh, and despite the fact that we spend a lot of the book in Paul's head reading all of his innermost thoughts, uh, it's shocking how okay he is with a lot of this stuff in the book <laughs> and how little of it rankles him. Uh, mm-hmm. But the fact that this Paul is a little bit more like, I think people should have like freedom of choice and stuff. And uh, I don't really like that we're manipulating an entire culture for our own weird, selfish ends. I like that. I think it makes him seem a lot more likable. And the fact that Jessica is also a little bit like the Bene Gesserit have been at work here, but I'm kind of not aligned with their stuff. I'm just sort of trying to like keep my family together and keep them happy and healthy. And like the fact that I have crazy superpowers is like a benefit, but it's mm-hmm. not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they fly over desert in the cool dragonfly-looking ships, uh, oh, which is probably there. my favorite ship design in the movie. Just you love, I love it anytime you get like the multiple wings going on. Oh yeah, it's just very. They're picture perfect. Sleek. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and they arrive at the city with its shield wall protecting it from weather and worms. Uh, Gurney explains to Leto that some local stats of the place as they survey the city. Uh, it's quiet, too quiet, but mm. we're not going to get to dwell on that for too long because they got to do a lot of more exposition before we can get to the part where everything just goes to shit. Um, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Everyone knows it's coming. <laughs> Paul's mom is presented with candidates for housekeeper, going with uh, Shadow Mapes, who is a Fremen and is carrying a concealed weapon, but Shadow's like, actually, this weapon is a gift if you are truly the one who comes with the Messiah or whatever and presents a Chris knife, mm-hmm. uh, a tooth from the Shah Halud made in the deep desert, and she gives it to Lady Jessica after she proves herself with a little, like, a secret test of character thingy. Yeah, um, something like that. This this is tweaked from the book. Obviously, the scene in the book was infinitely longer and more painful. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, shout out Mapes is just, like, the only candidate in the book. And Jessica's <laughs> like, this is fine and not suspicious. But uh, letting her pick her out of the lineup and be like, I use my Sherlock scan mind powers to recognize that you have a knife in your bodice is, like, better and more interesting. It mm-hmm. makes Jessica seem more powerful and smart. Yes. Uh, Mapes has a lot less personality than she does in the book, which is honestly fine. It's really no loss. Um, And uh, the scene where she presents the knife and Lady Jessica essentially proves herself in her eyes. um, We don't have access to her constant running inner monologue. Thank fuck. Uh, But in the book, this does reveal to us that uh, she knows the first answer of like, oh, it's a Chris knife because that's Benny Jesserit learning and stuff. But then when Mapes asks, like, do you know its meaning? She's like, oh. My Bene Gesserit training didn't cover this. I don't have a stock answer for do you know its meaning. Hmm. All right, let's think. I can't take too long or she'll probably stab me with that thing. Let me just use all my brain powers. And she literally, like, through blind luck, she starts saying, okay, well, the literal translation is maker of death. So I'll say it's a maker of death. And she gets to maker before Mapes is like, oh, my God, you got it right. It's a maker. Yay. <laughs> it's like, yes, I knew that. And it's just. Yeah. So they don't, we don't it's get that that we don't get that in the movie. Um, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, everywhere Paul goes, folks keep shouting at him. All of their happy to see him. And he uh, says hello moment where he goes and says hello to one of the workers at the palace castle compound watering a mm-hmm. palm tree. Uh, the gardener tells him that they're not indigenous here. They drink five men's worth of water a day. And Paul offers to remove them to save the water. But the man's like, no, these are sacred. They represent an old dream. It's very philosophical. We never It's see actually this man very literal. Again. <laughs> uh, it's it's again uh, it's a thing that actually gets brought up later in the movie so I don't really feel like this is a book only thing but essentially the idea is that the people who live on Arrakis think it sucks butt up there because it's like oh it's all dry and hot and we need to recycle our body water and it's gross and ah, I hate it 
Uh, so they would rather live in a world where that's not true. So the dream of terraforming Arrakis is like a, it's a sort of popular fantasy at in Arrakis. The people there want a world where there's water and plants and like a mm-hmm. water cycle and, and rain and stuff like that. And the fact that Arrakis is this hell world desert planet and the fact that, you know, the Atreides are like living it up in their nice palace and it still kind of sucks. Um it's interesting. So the fact that like, oh, these trees are sacred, they represent an old dream is like the old dream is that this planet would be capable of supporting plants like this, mm-hmm. that, you know, the dream of terraforming Arrakis. But we know that the spice is incredibly vital. It makes so much money and it is vital to the current system of space travel. So anything that compromises the integrity of spice harvesting is a threat to the entire empire. So the people who live on this planet are by nature of the system kind of fucked to live on a deserty hell world because if they change what makes it a desert world, they might change what makes the spice work. Right. So we get a little bit more of that later on when they are hiding yeah. out in an old ecological lab. Uh, yeah, that's why I feel okay about saying this because this is actually in the text of the movie. It's not just like, well, between the lines, if you check the wiki and mm-hmm. you ignore all the shit that happens in Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, it makes perfect sense. Anyway. Yeah, um, but Paul, uh, we get another little research sequence so that we can learn more things, specifically about the sandworms again and his little pop-up uh, textbook. This is where we see the sandwalk, and he also learns about how the Fremen have cultivated many plants that grow in the harsh desert environment, and he sees a little mm-hmm. mouse in one of them that will be a recurring mouse throughout this movie. Um, that mouse is the Muad'Dib. It's literally oh, what he gets so named cute. after later. It's so cute. <laughs> Uh, and as he researches, a tiny little bug flies into his room with a really long pointy nose. And you're like, oh, that's not good. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul senses it in a moment of tension as it flies very slowly uh, around the room, eventually faster towards his eyes, stopping just short. But when the housekeeper enters, it causes Paul to smash it against the wall. It was a hunter seeker, which is never a good name for something to have. Uh, and surely the operator of said hunter seeker was hiding in the walls and they do find the Harkonnen spy that was lurking inside some of the brick and must have been waiting there for days, which is very spooky. Um, and uh, he's in a still suit, which is the first time we see one. And it gives us a hint that like that means that you can survive for a really long time. You just might not like it. Yeah. Um, and the, the fact that it's like a completely wordless scene, but it communicates that the hunter seeker tracks based on movement and Paul knows this and is being extremely careful about it. It's all communicated just through the cinematography and the choreography and it's really good. So, yeah. And a thing that's cut from the book that was here is that Jessica discovers a beautiful indoor greenhouse with a secret message hidden by the last Bene Gesserit who was here because she was the wife of the last like people who had this specific terrarium or whatever and she left a message for jessica saying oh watch out there's like danger to your son uh specifically in like the headboard of his bed and she finds this out about five minutes after the hunter seeker has attacked paul and oh, paul comes running in with the hunter seeker like wow mom you'll never guess what came out of my bed frame and she's <laughs> like wow thank goodness for this warning that arrived five minutes too late it's just uh, classic mm, so Speaking of yeah. the Bene Gesserit, one of them is off visiting the Harkonians, uh, Harkonnens, who are planning to wipe out the Atreides, of course they are, on Arrakis, because of course they are, uh, and she just requests that they let Jessica and her son live in exile as opposed to being murdered outright, and Harkonnen agrees, um, but after she leaves, he's like, the desert will take care of the weak, and then he stands up, yes. and he's just like super tall, and he's supposed to look scary, but he just looks like one of those guys outside of the car dealerships that go all like, woo, and wave around. Um, he's not super tall, he's floating. Um, it's the same thing, man. It's not. Absolutely not. Uh, it and, looks uh, the same visually. It just means there's does, less structural yes. integrity for him to not be doing the woo thing that the car plays does. 
It looks like he's doing, he's got like Eggman proportions with like the round body and then like the really skinny legs. Uh, but no, he's floating and it's honestly quite eerie, uh, but it is also kind of stupid. Um, and one thing I like about that is that he is like, the Benny Jessard is like, Lady Jessica's under protection and so is Paul, so you can't hurt them. And he's like, okay. And then as soon as the, she leaves, he's like, I had my fingers crossed and it's opposite day. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> oopsies, I guess I'm going to kill them. Yeah. Um, uh, this is a scene that must have happened in the book, but didn't happen on screen. So showing it to us was a very efficient way of telling us what exactly was going on. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, there's a little bit at the uh, end of the last scene where everyone's reacting to the hunter-seeker assassination attempt, and Leto's very angry. He's like, you know, they tried to take the life of my son uh, in the book. He says that about eight times. So you can really just see how when people are like, oh, the book's unfilmable, it's like, no, I promise it's good. If you just take all the stupid shit <laughs> and the stuff that happens eight times and you squeeze that down to like one... And then it's fine. It's mm-hmm. actually very simple. Uh, and also Thufir Howard immediately trying to resign and the Duke being like, how dare you? How selfish of you to try and deprive us of your skills at this time, yeah. you ass. And uh, Thufir Howard is much worse in the book because they have that stupid Lady Jessica might be the traitor thing. And Thufir Howard is the person who's absolutely convinced that it's Jessica. Uh. And then when shit actually goes down, he's even more convinced that it was Jessica the whole time. So he's insufferable in the book. And in the movie, it's just like, oh, it's kind of like a like he's a, a, a doofy old man. Back. Yeah. Yeah, just a guy who can sometimes do math and make his eyes go weird. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so movie Thufir Howitt is infinitely less annoying than book Thufir Howitt. Yes. And speaking of him, he's at a strategy meeting with uh, Gurney, Paul, and Leto. This is the first meeting that like Paul's sitting in and he's getting trained in the ways of being the head of the house or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And report Thufir reports that the Harkonnens left them with pretty shoddy equipment. And uh, Leto's like, well, I've got to see this for myself. So they decide to go see the harvesting fields. Uh, and they ask that the arbiter of the change, the neutral party assigned by the Imperial to oversee this transition an ecologist go with them so that they can finally meet and also they can have like the neutral party see how things are um yep. as and that is dr liet kynes yes. and they know her full name Liet-Kynes. in the book <sighs> sorry there's so much dumb shit in the book uh in the book they notice that the fremen whenever they're asked about like what are the locations of these interesting you know places they often say like uh liet knows so they assume that liet is like oh it's like some native superstition for like god or whatever rather yeah. than oh yes liet is the first name of the ecologist assigned to this planet who would know this stuff know has things. been hanging out with the fremen and this is information we should have access to because this guy works for the emperor <laughs> so yep. um Takes them a whole half book, all these mega genius supercomputer men, to figure yep, out yep, yep. the first name of their colleague. Uh, Duncan <laughs> arrives back from his time with the Fremen at this point, uh, gets a big old hug from Paul, and reports about his weeks in the Siege with the 10,000 Fremen who live there, which is just one of many uh, of the residential areas for the Fremen. Uh, they're these underground strongholds essentially um it's out of the sun and you can theoretically collect a little more water down there so it's better than nothing it makes sense Um, they also make uh, oscar isaac say desert power again at this point uh which is the (laughs) second of three times it will come up Uh, (laughs) and uh one of the fremen came back with duncan it's stilgar who is welcomed by Lido. it's a tense situation um but he's trying to make a good impression stilgar spits it's a at first taken his offense, but quickly explained that, like, no, this is a sharing of moisture, so the rest all follow suit. Uh, and Stilgar yeah. asks that they not seek out the sieges, uh, and Leto promises that, though he will probably have to go out into the desert uh, as the caretaker of this planet, he promises to not seek out the specific sieges and, you know, bulldoze over the Fremen, essentially. Uh, he's yep. trying to build a good relationship as opposed to the way the Harkonnens ruled, uh, and this situation sort of goes by 
as amicably as it could have. There's a moment where Stilgar's like, Paul, <laughs> I know yeah. you. And then he <laughs> ominously walks out. <laughs> so a couple things. Uh, so when uh, when Stilgar, the Fremen leader, spits and everyone's like, oh, how dare you? And then uh, Duncan's like, uh, thank you, Stilgar, for the gift of your body's moisture. We accept it in the spirit in which it was yes, given. Yes, and yes. then he spits. And there's this kind of awkward bit where Leto kind of like leans forward a little bit. And then he kind of does a little like to sort of also spit to show like, yeah, I get it. Uh, Book Leto doesn't do that. He, he doesn't do that little bit of cultural exchange. He's just like, oh, okay, it wasn't mortal offense, fine, and sits back down. This goes a long way towards making Leto in the movie seem like a much more sincere character who's actually trying to reach out to the Fremen and understand them and, like, do this thing that, like, clearly every instinct is like, this is not at all how this is supposed to go, but you know what? In the spirit it's given, let's do it. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. Stilgar in the book will not shut up, like everybody else. He just talks and talks and talks. So I think the bit where he's like, all right, I'm going. That's all I have to say to you. I think that's like a cheeky nod from the movie of being like, oh, were you expecting eight more pages of exposition? <laughs> no, he's gone. <laughs> he's leaving, baby. And I thought that was fun. I love those little moments anytime the movie, again, closes a little hole from the book. Yeah. Uh, and the bit where he looks at Paul and he's like, oh, I recognize you. I don't actually remember that being in the book. So I thought that was just a cute little like hint of, oh, yeah, you know, prophecies got to me, too. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All good stuff. Uh, Paul also has a little chat with Duncan after this where he gets a bit more exposition about like specific items that may be important <laughs> tools to help us later. Like a yeah. compass, which works here because there are two moons in this planet. So a regular compass just won't won't cut it. Uh, and a sand compactor, which kind of just moves sand around, which is very useful given how much sand is on this planet. Um, There's an awful lot of sand on this planet. uh And Duncan (laughs) expresses admiration for the Fremen here to show like, hey, they're like powerful warriors, noble people, all that jazz. Um, Leto, Paul, and the gang head over to meet Dr. Liette Kynes, who is my favorite character in this movie, uh, the imperial ecologist. She's just super cool and I like her so much. Uh, (laughs) And she's a lot, yeah, she's honestly very vibrant and interesting, uh, but also much better than her book version. Uh, who in her, her Well, first of all, uh, her book version is a guy, and in his intro, he straight up hates Duke Leto and Paul. He's, we're in his head for the whole scene, and he's just so judgy and mean. Mm-hmm. And then, like, they do one thing, and he's like, ah, fuck, I think mm, I yes, like yes, this yes. Duke. Uh, <laughs> but for various reasons, that's kind of funny. This version of Kynes, she's a lot less judgmental. She just seems kind of checked out. She's yeah. like... Hey, you know, like I've been living in Dune for decades, and I'm I'm basically one of the Fremen now. I've I've really integrated in their society. And honestly, when you're dealing with that shit, all that weird political bullshit doesn't really seem all that important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's just so cool. She's so cool. <laughs> she's awesome. I liked her so much. And then when she started appearing in the movie more, I liked it so much. And then I got really nervous really fast when she was appearing a little too much in the end of the movie. Uh, <laughs> the old Duncan Idaho. The ah, old kid, Dun- I'm not gonna she die. She was my Duncan Idaho, and I. <laughs> Um, but she also. This I is had a, moment a vision. Where we... I, I looked on TV tropes, and it told me you died. Um, which this is also the moment where we get sort of the explanation of the silt suit, which is the way that everyone survives in the desert. It's the armor that you saw in all the trailers for the movie. It essentially recycles the moisture from the body, so that you only lose a thimbleful of water a day to like sweat and tears if it became relevant. Uh, and it's how people are able to survive for so long. It's what we saw on the Harkonnen agent earlier in the walls. And that's why everyone who wears a still suit smells like wet butt crack. Yeah, because it's that just is your in fact sweat involved constantly. in the process. It's not just sweat. It's, it's not all just sweat. The water. It's all water. <laughs> It's best so I not to w- dwell on that too much. Well, they never really explain, like, hey, where does the waste come out? It's just, oh, don't worry about it. Don't it's worry fine. about it. it. You're a perfect yeah, yeah, yeah. closed system. You'll be great. Um, but they do look extremely cool. Mm-hmm. They look cool. And she also, there's a nice moment here because she's, like, surprised that Paul is wearing his suit, how it would be worn by the Fremen. She's like, oh, did you 
wear one of these before and he's like no it just seemed like the right way to do it she has a like moment of muttering to herself like he will know your ways before you do yada 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 uh (laughs) it's just and it's kind of cute that like paul's like prophecies i don't like that we're misleading these people and then keeps accidentally doing all the perfect chosen one stuff like well this is just the best way to wear it so like it's not uncomfortable and it it doesn't you know it's more efficient this way and it's like yes and there's a it's kind of mentioned that in the movie, he sort of mm-hmm. does give tips and tricks to other people who wear stills. It's like, oh, you know, like, you got to wear it like this, breathe through this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and just the fact that, like, he takes to it almost immediately is kind of fun. Uh, in the book, it's a little more overt about that because we get everyone's inner narration. Like, uh, Leto notices, like, oh, they adjust it so it's less uncomfortable. And, yeah, it is less uncomfortable. That's neat. But Paul doesn't need to be told because he's super smart and a super genius. Yes. And he's the chosen one. The Kwisatz Haderach. Well, he'll be there eventually. Um uh, kinds of she's just so cool. I every as soon as she shows up, the movie gets infinitely better. Yeah, I'm just like, to, oh, someone I care about in this movie. <laughs> this is when the movie gets good. Up until this point, it's been fine, but it's been doing a lot of heavy lifting to cover all the all the exposition ground, all the world building that the book has had to kind of drop in. Uh, it's doing a lot of visual heavy lifting. They have to keep introducing characters. The number of scenes that they've cut that are kind of instrumental to a lot of those characters. Like, Thufir Howard in this movie almost feels completely superfluous. He just kind of disappears at some point. Uh, and that's a result of a lot of his stuff in the book just getting cut for time and efficiency. Uh, so up until this point, the movie's been doing what I like to call, like, structural storytelling in that it is building foundations that good stuff will go on later. Kynes' introduction heralds the good shit starting. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely when it started to pick up for me, at the very least. Uh, the <laughs> flight to the spice fields over worm territory. Worm territory. <laughs> worm Whee! territory. Because that's what everyone's here for this movie, right? Yeah. Everyone, wa- everyone reads Dune and is like, oh, man, if we had the effects to do this, it would kick ass. And they tried in 1984. Oh, boy, did they try. They oh, actually baby. pulled it off a little bit. You know, you yeah. got like a big, like, uh, what, stop motion worm and then like a miniature set yeah. and that really fine powder that looks like sand from a distance but is horribly they bad for your lungs with the effects that they had available to them they did their best yeah they tried but now oh we've got now we get got... that glorious high definition sandworm uh they approach a harvester which is harvesting spice flying up to see how the spice beds look in their little dragonfly helicopters and uh uh Liet kind of explains the whole system that they have that like the harvester on the ground is making a lot of vibrations to harvest the spice and worms sense vibrations so that they are kind of always have a spotter out looking for worms in the distance. If they hang around long enough, they should see one. Luckily for them, almost immediately there is a worm coming. Uh, they call in the worm sign, and they're gonna say worm sign so worm much in this. <laughs> this war oh, worm this scene sign. is so good. And I will say that, like as mentioned, the first like hour of this movie is a very slow burn. Yeah. And then as soon as this scene started, like, this was right around the time where I was, like, getting up and checking, like, how much I had left. It's like, okay, fine. Jesus, another hour and a half. Okay. As soon as they say worm sign in five minutes, I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. oh, it's getting good. The soundtrack's doing that classic Hans Zimmer ticking clock sound effect. And I was like, they're not really going to do us the five minutes in real time, are they? Oh, they are. Uh... And I will say, this scene plays out almost exactly the same in the book, except it's worm sign in 25 minutes. Just to give you an idea. I'm glad they shortened that. Uh, That feels like this movie is two and a half hours long, and it feels like it. I'm glad that the worm scene wasn't 25 of those minutes. 
Um, mm-hmm. They call a carryall to lift the crawler off the ground and therefore out of the reach of the worm. Uh, five minutes to worm contact. The carryall makes connection, but one of the arms is in unattached and it just won't be able to lift it. Um, so Leto, concerned for the men on that crawler and not the spice that it holds, is like, hey, I bet if we ground around we can fit all the men on that crawler onto our copter so they fly down to help evacuate uh <laughs> they land and he's like paul go help direct people and so paul takes a moment to touch sand in this crisis situation two minutes to it's worm spice he's experiencing <laughs> spice for the first he time he reaches down and he important. puts his hand in the sand and i'm like people are maybe going to die including you um I think they handled that extremely well. I think as soon as he leaves the the thopter, it's clear that the atmosphere hits him very hard and he's having this odd, like, he's, like, not quite lost it yet, but he's, like, sort of half there and half wherever. Um, This entire scene with Paul out of the thopter being kind of whammied by the spice Mm -hmm. is not in the book. Uh, It is an addition. It splits an upcoming scene in half, essentially. His first spice exposure in the book happens much later. uh, And all of his weird Kwisatz shit happens at the same time. This draws it out a lot more, and I like it a lot better. Yeah. Um, but all the stuff about Duke Leto being like, we're getting everyone on. Like, okay, initially they're like, it's an unlicensed, you know, it's an unregistered flight. Don't tell it. Don't tell them we're the Duke. We're kind of being cautious about it. They don't say it, but you can infer like yeah. someone might be listening. Uh, but as soon as they're coming into the rescue with the kicking music firing up in the background, he's like, this is Duke Leto Atreides. We're coming to pick you up. And it's like, yeah, that's my Hell boy. yeah. Uh, and they're like, okay, we can only fit, like, it's 21, we'll still be three people overweight. And it's like, okay, what do we do? And Paul's like, uh, the shield generators are heavy. If we jettison them, we should be able to fit one more man each. And it's like, yes, perfect. Um, I think in the book, that's Leto's idea. And the fact that, like, Leto is like, I don't care about the spice. Damn the spice. You know, we're getting yeah. the men out of here. And there's a bit where Kynes kind of, like, whips her head towards him as soon as he says, like, damn the spice. And in the book, as mentioned, Kynes, like, does not like Leto up until this point. But then this is where he's like... I think I like this dude uh, because it's like, cool, oh, fuck, actually. he genuinely actually cares more about his men than the fabulous wealth of this world. He actually values the people, not the spice. That's all we've been looking for in a leader. And all we've been getting is power hungry men who can't be normal about a planet made of cocaine for some reason. Um, so it's just, there again, little like a single half second scene that basically adapts an entire page's worth of inner monologue into like, oh, shit. He said, damn the spice. That's great. Um, but yeah. Paul stumbling out of the Paul doctor and just having this stumbles weird out of the spice. copter. He's yeah. like, whoa, spice is making me go crazy. He loads folks in and then starts <laughs> hearing eerie voices and collapses into the sand. He gets the whole like <laughs> mind vision visions. Of things to come, things that yeah. are happening, who he is. It gets very ambiguous. confusing. They do their best, but yeah. yeah. Parts of it, it's like, wait, is this, wait, oh, hold on. For a while, you can only tell what's a vision of the future because, like, the, the light bleed effect is a little different when it's yeah. a vision of the future. Uh, or it's got, it's got, like, more roughness to it. Um, and there's an absolutely fantastic bit later in this scene. But this is the part where, like, as the worm's getting closer and Paul's losing his shit, I was like, leaning forward in my seat i was like all right (laughs) this is maybe i think the scene in the movie that works the best overall in terms of how much i was engaged in the movie and not thinking about anything else and also (laughs) um how much i wanted to actually see more of it uh yes 
Yeah, but the I worm agree. is arriving just as everyone is starting to take off. Paul is still collapsed. Uh, so he's rushed from his trance to the copter by Gurney, who's like, get, get your ass moving, kid. Yeah. Uh, and they flee. And and this like ticking clock is sand. not in the book because Paul <laughs> didn't have that freak out in the book. But it does lead to that fantastic callback because, of course, in the first scene when Gurney's introduced and he walks in and he's like, oh, you got your back to the door or whatever, kid. And he's mm-hmm. like, I could hear your footsteps, old man. Uh, and as Paul's kind of delirious, like staring at the crawler and all the sound is gone and he's clearly in his own little world, he kind of murmurs you know, I recognize your footsteps, old man. And then jump cut, Gurney's behind him, grabbing him by the shoulder, dragging him away. Mm-hmm. And someone pointed out to me that one nickname for the sandworms in the lore is like the old man of the desert. So is he talking to Gurney or is or he literally worm. talking to the worm behind him? Uh, yes. And he's, you know, he's crazy psychic. Who the fuck knows? Could be either. Could be both. Uh, but Gurney's like, oh, my God, get on the fucking kids. <laughs> just drags him out. And the sand's liquefying under them, which yes, is not an effect from the book. showing up to, like, just start to get a chomp. They make it into the chomp for the last possible second. And they all watch mm-hmm. as they take off as the crawler is eaten by a big old worm mouth. It it's just got all these, falls like, into the worm mouth. And it just falls right in. It's massive. And this is a cool effect that, like, I guess wasn't really known about at the time. But if you uh, vibrate. Uh, any particulate mass at a specific frequency, uh, it, l- it experiences liquefaction, mm, where basically yeah. the particles vibrating at the right frequency begin acting like a liquid rather than a particulate mass. You can liquefaction sand, essentially, and uh, the way that the Shai Hulud work in this movie, it's very clearly sound-based. They actually modeled some of the inside of the worm by, like, it was really gross. They had, like, a camera down, like a like a dubstep like or like a what is it like a beatboxer's like vocal cords and they're like oh it's so nasty we're gonna model that into the worm so it's all clearly sound based and the shy halud come to like rhythmic sounds and stuff like that there's there's something about that so basically the way that these things work is there's just like really long tube sock speaker phones and they just like they liquefy the the sand with the sound and then they just like just let it all drop in (laughs) with the food and then they go away uh and it's such a good scene it's gorgeous like it just looks like everything's falling and then the teeth just emerge the sand falls past them and you just see more of the worm um and it's just gorgeous and kinds has the like almost a prayer after the worm you know uh, bless mm-hmm. the maker and his water bless the coming and going of him may his passing cleanse the world straight off the page obviously but hans zimmer's score is what really sells the scene uh just on top of the beautiful visuals so yeah i, I would have been happy if the movie was just that to be completely honest <laughs> Yeah, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I was so much more invested in whatever this worm was up to than <laughs> like the <laughs> inevitable downfall of House of Trades, which speaking of, uh, Leto yells at Paul <laughs> incredibly briefly when they get off of the copter, like, yeah, give to Regulus, and then they just completely move on. It's never <laughs> Well, they had to move on because that wasn't in the book. <laughs> wasn't in the like, book. I can't believe you'd do uh, that anyway. And he's so doomed that we just do not have time for him and his father to be like <laughs> and any sort of squabble. Uh he starts to like kind of get a little pissy, like, Leah, you saw like all of the equipment we've been left with, like barely worked and she's like I can't take your side here you just have to take good care of your family like I'm a neutral observer um but the the implication that like if she were a neutral like a fully neutral observer she'd be like yeah pretty fucked up that, that crawler was very clearly sabotaged I'd definitely mm-hmm. report that but the fact that she's like mm, mm, I don't know seems equipment. like could have been something else you better watch out man I also like that you know everyone in the story knows that Leto is doomed including Leto but also everyone in the story knows that Leto is not important and mm-hmm. I think that's very funny they're like yeah. Take care of 
your your concubine Jessica and your son. And it's like, what about me? I'm important. I'm cool. I'm played I'm Oscar by Oscar Isaac. Isaac. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, one thing about the crawler, another change from the book that is infinitely less stupid is that in the book, the crawler, uh, the the carry all is coming for it, and then it just fucks off. It like leaves, and they're like, where'd the carry all go? And they're like, I don't know. It's like, was nobody watching? No, we all keep our eyes on the sand for worm signs. So they didn't notice the big fuck off ship <laughs> just leaving. So the fact that it was sabotaged. Yeah, we really got to keep an eye out for the worms. Sabotage is, I think, much more compelling. uh, Yeah, it makes it seem less like the Harkonnens. It it makes it seem like they have, like, fewer spies on the ground actively subverting and more like, oh, yeah, they fucked up a lot of stuff and then they left. Yeah. Uh, It just feels better. Um, But just so fucking, because they keep, like, they keep coming back to, like, where'd the carry-all go? Oh, it left. How did nobody spot it? Just, like, stop bringing it up. (laughs) If it's that stupid, just write it differently. Um, so the movie's better again. Uh, but yeah, uh, he's, he's mad. Leto's big mad about how obviously they've been set up to fail. And, uh, Kynes at this point does clearly like Leto and is like, hey man, I, I can't, I can't help you out on this, but you know, watch out. It's coming. (laughs) So, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yue also re-enters the film at this point to examine Paul, who has been exposed to spice and apparently is sensitive to it, but should be fine. And Paul's like, it wasn't allergies, Jessica. I had a vision. Uh, And of course, he saw Zendaya, but this time she stabbed him. So that sucks. Uh, He's like, I know someone will hand me a blade and I don't, but I don't know when or where. And also, I know that you're pregnant, mom. And she's like, what? (laughs) You can't know that. I barely know that. I barely Uh, know that. Again, the Bene Gesserit crazy bodily control, mm-hmm. cellular awareness. Like she's just like, yeah, there's a there's a little there's a little embryo in there. It's going to become a baby later. That's cool. Um, yeah. So this is again, it's a scene from later in the book, split in half. Uh, essentially, the first time Paul is exposed to the spice. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, he was being trained as a mentat, right? Like that was part of the lore of the book is that he's Mm -hmm. been given crazy supercomputer brain powers. Uh, His first exposure to Spice kicks that into overdrive in a way he can't control. And he's just like constantly taking in data and emotionlessly calculating it, but he can't make it stop. And the fact that it's emotionless calculation is really freaking him out. And he's also observing all this stuff. He's like, okay, yeah, I know you're pregnant. I know some other stuff about your secret heritage that the book makes a huge deal of that the movie will never address. And I know all these futures and a vision of the, you know. So basically about half of that is in this scene. And then the other half happens later when it is supposed to happen. And the bit when he's sort of hearing the visions, one of the things they say is like, the Kwisatzharak has awakened. So the implication is that the Kwisatzharak, which is Paul, but in his like enlightened form, is awakening earlier but slower like it Mm -hmm. takes him a little while to really get get up to speed whereas in the book it's like one scene and he's like i am now turbo chad mega genius but my third eye is wide open at the same time (laughs) so all these fucking people i swear anyway um it's a good scene and the stuff about his future younger sister is kind of cute and I, Mm -hmm. i thought it was fun yeah, and we uh, very quickly leave this scene to go to Seleucus Secundus, which is the Imperial planet, uh, where a throat-singing guy who was all over Twitter when this movie came out is singing his little <laughs> song as all the soldiers assemble. <laughs> it's just the one dude in the tower, and he's just jamming. <laughs> I like to imagine that he and, like, Bagpipe Guy have, like, a lifelong rivalry. <laughs> enemies to lovers. You, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's an enemies to lovers thing. Like, <laughs> like they, like, you know, throat singer guy's like, oh, I'm here at the Sardaukar base, and I'm hyping them up and then bagpipe guys like yeah you know I had to sing in the Atreides and then they like meet up at like the space bar and it's like 
uh, rough day at work. Yeah, you too, yeah. brother. <laughs> a few drinks <laughs> in, and they're just like, I don't know. Everyone knows the Duke is fucked. Yeah, man, I don't know. We're recruiting all our guys from prison. It's crazy. Man, you're great. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other shit is happening. Yeah. There are two perspectives I want on this movie. One of them is the two music guys, and the other one is just Dune Worm Edition, where you spend most of it underground in the dark with like ASMR sand noises and then you get the sand crawler <laughs> scene and then you you're back underground you worm only simulator. get the scenes where a worm is above ground and like interacting with the with the crew yes. <laughs> everything Ooh. else is just dark and sand <laughs> noises the Harkonnens are here on this planet to approach the Sardaukar who are these great warriors that serve the Emperor uh, they are being gifted three battalions of them to take on the Atreides uh, as the Emperor has already agreed to loan them these they spend a lot of time discussing how the Emperor has agreed to loan them these with a guy who's very irritated to be talking to someone and then they leave the scene having acquired the troops that they need um, it's much shorter than it is in the book it's I like, imagine oh, it's a lot of time discussing I assure you it is not um, uh, meanwhile Jessica seems distraught as I too would be if my son had just gotten really strange all of a sudden although it feels like maybe she should have been ready for this thing as that's what she was training him to do. Uh, she tries to tell Leto about Paul, but Leto's like, I don't want to know about it. Paul hasn't been the same ever since you brought your like weird reverend mother around. <laughs> this scene is great because none of it happens in the book and the scene knows it. Because like when, it, when they're having this conversation, Jessica's at one point is like, oh, none of this is you. Or, you know, and then Leto's like, oh, I thought we'd have more time. And it's like, you did. There were like eight more subplots before this happened in the book. Um, mm-hmm. There was a dinner party in the book that was just all the weird like weird political intrigue and a bunch of nothing characters scheming against each other and like arguments over the food and it's just I was listening through that last night it was agony uh but they just they're like Paul and Jessica uh sorry Leto and Jessica at this point in the book are not talking to each other mm-hmm. because the stupid we think Jessica is the traitor subplot has kicked into high gear and Leto never actually suspects her but he has to make it look like he suspects her and he can't just tell her hey I'm going to play it like I think you're a traitor but actually I still know and trust you because he's like no it must be authentic and god forbid my super powered space witch concubine would be able to sell a lie that would be ridiculous. I must mislead her and break her. It's so fucking stupid. Uh, it's it's part of the bits where the weird gender shit kind of leaks through. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, in the book, he and Jessica aren't speaking to each other, really, and he's not, like, spending his off hours with her. So this conversation couldn't have happened in the book. Uh, but in this version, they don't have any of that weird forced conflict. So when she's like, hey... So I need to tell you about Paul because in her head, she's clearly like, I'm going to tell you that I have accidentally born the Kwisatz Haderach chosen one. And uh, who the fuck knows what's going to happen? But he's like, no, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I actually can't know. (laughs) It it would be weird if I knew. Uh, And their little conversation of like, none of this is you. Uh, I just think that's such a funny little like the script notes made it into the actual like, hold on. This isn't in the book. None of this is you. (laughs) Um, So good. And the kind of the crux Um, of this is that Leto asked Jessica is if... She would protect Paul, not as his mother, but as, like, the Bene uh, Jesset. And she doesn't really answer before the scene she ends. She doesn't really answer, yeah. But she um, will. But so she I will. don't know why they played coy with that. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. like, that is the one thing I have never had a question about over the course of this movie. <laughs> yeah. But, I wonder if Lady Jessica is super devoted to her son, Paul. I, I just don't know if she's really feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um but it is very funny how the scene ends with him being like, I thought we'd have more time. Because it's like, even he knows. Even, even he, he knows, knows where this is going. Yeah. Uh, Paul is given some water and some pills that are definitely like sleeping pills by Dr. Yeah. They show up and I'm like, oh, to knock him out. 
Well, the funny thing is, this is established as just a thing they do. Yeah. Like, on the regs. Uh, it, it's much more brought up in the book that, like, they are constantly taking, like, stimulants and sleeping pills and stimulants and sleeping pills and something to take the edge off of the fatigue. and Because they're all stressed and overworked from dealing with the Har- Harkonnens, but also none of them feel as stressed as they are in the movie. Like, Leto's actually mad when the crawler thing happens. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, you know, you see what they left us with. Whereas in the book, he's like, yes, this is all standard political machination shit. Nothing to worry about. I mean, obviously, it's everything to worry about, but we've got it well in hand and we know what we're doing. And this is all going to be very standard political theater stuff. And then it's like, just kidding. <laughs> we're actually here to murder all of you. Oopsies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway. Uh, the evasion, this is the point in the movie we're about an hour in. They're like, now we can finally invade Arrakis and take down. <laughs> Here's where the good <laughs> shit happens again. Yeah. Uh, Leto awakens to a signal light flashing in the distance and investigates, calling for security but getting no response. He activates his shield. But not before he gets in another couple death flags because he and and Jessica are, like, lounging together and he's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I should have married you. (laughs) And, like, that back-to-back with I thought we'd have more time is like, okay. (laughs) Um, He activates his shield, finds the housekeeper dead, and as he helps her uh, up, a hunter-seeker attacks him in the back, breaking through his shield and basically... Functionally, uh, this is the beginning of the end for Leto, as though he had not already been <laughs> dying this whole time. Who was yeah. controlling the Hunter Seeker, though? It's Dr. Yeah, he's the one who was betraying them the whole time. The shield around the city goes down, and the security forces jump into action. The invasion has begun. Fight, fight, fight. Key light, key light, key light. The question it's on my beautiful. mind was so the bagpipe music surely must be diegetic here. So, <laughs> yeah. where is he? I didn't see him in the crowd. <laughs> Charging um, into battle, bagpipes in hand. Yeah, Gertie and his forces are in control of a chance. Champion. Gurney and his forces rush out to meet the Imperial troops and the Harkonnens and they fight as the bagpipes blare. Uh, the scene is gorgeous uh, and it happens in the book, but we don't see it because the only <laughs> characters we follow are Paul, Jessica and Leto, who are all pretty well back from like the yeah. cool shit. Uh, the discussions of like what weapons they can use and what weapons interact weirdly with what defenses uh, is much more explored in the book, but almost all of it is true to how it plays out in movie which is really good the thing that i think was really cool was when they dropped the artillery and it very slowly burrowed through the ship shields detonated and until the shield technology was compromised the explosion was perfectly contained in the shape of the shield around the ship and then whenever the shield technology was busted the explosion burst out of the shield as the shield lost integrity Mm -hmm. they loved that effect they did it so many times it was absolutely gorgeous this battle scene is the other incredibly good part of the movie after the crawler scene it's very pretty um a little bit dark, but I think on a big screen it would have worked better. Again, the first time I watched this movie, I watched it on an airplane. It was basically just a big gray mass with occasional that explosions in the so background. Much, but this time that, it was much better crazy. watching it on the screen I could get closer to. Um, but troops are descending on the palace. Uh, guards rushing to meet them and hold the line. There's a great moment where the Sardaukar descend from behind the line of guards and take them out in like a pincher movement that kind of sets mm-hmm. up uh, some sneakery they'll do later. Dr. Ya drags Leto away, apologizing to him and telling him that the reason he betrayed them is because he has a bargain with the Baron, because the Harkonnens have his wife, and he's like, I can only free her by betraying you. That's the bargain that I struck. Uh, And he's using Leto to buy her freedom, but he's still going to help him out. He still wants to help Paul, and he gives Leto a poison tooth that he can use to, by like biting down on it really hard, uh, fill the room with poison gas and kill anyone in his immediate space with his last breath. Uh, Yeah. The thing about UA is that in the book, obviously we get everyone's constant running inner monologue, which means every time we are hanging out with UA, he is constantly like, 
Ah, I can't believe I have to betray these people, but they have my dear Wana, and I absolutely must betray them for my dear Wana. And everyone else is like, everyone is under suspicion, except for Dr. Yue. He's undergone Imperial Conditioning. We're not going to really explain what that means, but it means he's completely above suspicion, and there's absolutely no way to break it. And the fact that a hostage was not considered <laughs> that's like baby's first manipulation tactic yeah. and it's insulting that none of these turbo chad mega geniuses even consider like hey what if he has a loved one and they're like we're gonna do bad things to your loved one unless yeah, you do what we I want think you the to movie, not uh putting so much emphasis on everyone being like turbo chad mega geniuses does allow this whole plot line to flow a little bit because i'm like yeah "Yeah, i still feel like maybe it's a little silly that you didn't know that this trusted doctor in your employee had a wife who was being tormented by your uh rivals and enemies but i believe it more than i would if you were walking around saying like i am the greatest genius to ever bless this planet (laughs) there's a bit where jessica is talking to ua about this stuff and he's like uh, she's like oh i didn't realize you hated the harkonnen so much and he's like oh yes my my dear wife. And she's like, oh, how terrible. His wife must have been killed by the Harkonnens. There's absolutely no way he would ever side with them in <laughs> anything. And it's like, are you serious? Yeah. Another thing that they don't bring up in the movie that is just casually in the background of the book is that Paul is superhumanly capable of telling when somebody is lying to him under mm-hmm. all circumstances. Even if he's in the room, with, even if they're not lying directly to him, if someone's lying around him, he just knows. Right. And even if someone's lying by omission, he's like, hmm, they're not telling the whole truth. How interesting. Uh, and this is supposed to be like a cultivated thing. They bring up in the movie a couple times like, oh, truth sayers or like whatever. If we, if we were interrogated by one, we'd have to tell them. But if we like kill them by omission, like if we just leave them to die technically we didn't kill them so we can say we didn't kill them and you know they won't complain um so paul just magically having this ability the whole time is like one of the many signs of oh he could be the one the uh so leaving that out i think was smart Mm -hmm. everyone in this book is much like lower powered than and the movie is much lower powered than the book uh but it's good it makes things make more sense yeah (laughs) it's less of a stretch to relate to these people (laughs) So anyway, of, uh, relating to these people, we get to see Duncan make his grand escape and disappear into the Duncan! night. Oh, no, he, Another thing we don't he, see like, in the book. One man army fights his way out of a bunch of troops, steals a helicopter and like disappears into a dust cloud. Surely he won't reappear later. He's going to reappear I've later. I've been told that uh, <laughs> if you are attracted to men, this scene is a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Well, because, you know, it's it's Jason Momoa in, like, the full open, loose pirate shirt with two swords. Yeah, everyone else just, is running around in full armor, and he's like, what if I just pirate sword my way through this? Um, yeah. Just kicking ass, having great. a great time. He's clearly having a, bit... a blast, too. Like, you could see oh, yeah. on his face, I'm like, yes, the house I serve is falling, but this is really fun for me. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Let's go! But there's also a bit where he's uh, in the thopter, and he's being pursued by a laser. Not like a sci-fi pew-pew laser, but like an actual cutting laser beam. Uh, and I believe that is the thing from the book called las guns, uh, which are specified to uh, you can't use them on anything with a shield because if you do, it basically produces a mini nuclear explosion. The mechanics behind this are not specified. I assume it has something to do with attempting to slow something that is a light beam. And maybe that does something fucky to it. But if that's what that laser weapon is, and I assume it is, uh, there's a lot of sort of like back and forth guerrilla tactics about like, well, mm-hmm. they don't know if we have shields and uh, if they use atomics or las guns on shields and they leave radioactive residue, they won't be able to cover up mm. that this was like a violent coup. So they can't do that. This is all stuff that's in the book. Don't think it would have added much no, to the movie, but I it's like, it, yeah. You know, we just need to see the house uh, Atreides fall and 
we do in that the most spectacularly beautiful it's a, it's way a spectacle. possible. The characters that we need to see escape, escape. Uh, we see Paul and his mother, meanwhile, being carried off in one of the copters with a bunch of Harkonnens who are planning to drop them in the middle of the desert and let it do their dirty work. The Harkonnens are taunting Paul and his mother, uh, and she's like, through sign language to Paul, like, don't use the voice, you know, you, you, you don't know what you're doing. Um, but he tries it anyway, and when at first it fails, only after he's reminded to find the right se- frequency uh, and is about to be thrown out of the uh, plane does he find the right pitch and gets the gag removed from his mother, which allows her to use the, her voice to take control of the situation and defeat their captors. Uh, incredibly quickly. Incredibly just quickly. telling them to kill each other, <laughs> uh, which is better than the version in the book. I mean, how many times can I say that? Because in the version in the book, like Paul does his thing exactly the same. But as soon as she gets ungagged, her strategy is using the voice to say, now, boys, you don't have to fight over me. And just uh. like pulling the, oh, I'm so sexy and vulnerable. And it's like, I like that this lady Jessica's like, kill him, give me the knife, Moto. push on. <laughs> um, and then after that, she's like, oh, your pitch was too forced. And it's like, oh, yeah, and you were the picture of calmness with your use of the voice, uh-huh. Lady Jessica. None of that was forced. <laughs> uh, but the ship goes uh, down there. Paul and his mother are the only ones uh, still in it, but it's disabled by the Harkonnens who are scanning frequencies or whatever. So now it won't be able to fly. So Paul and his mother run to the top of the nearest dune and watch in the distance as their city goes up in flames. Um, they guess they'll have to spend the night in the desert. Uh, <gasps> ooh. They take shelter in their craft uh, and eventually find a Frem kit, which thanks to Dr. Yeah has an Atreides beacon in it, uh, as well as a little note from him being like, I did what I had to for my wife. Um, and they're going to yeah. hunker down in the tent for the night. Meanwhile, Leto is wheeled into a meeting room with the Baron. Uh, yeah, the, this, he, uh, yeah. He's uh, fully nude. <laughs> he's just like passed out in a chair. That's not in the book for the record. He's wearing pants there. Um, I like If anyone wa- like listening to this has watched the first episode of Sandman, where the main character spends the entire first episode like naked in a goldfish bowl, and you kind of spend it like just in the eyes of the cameraman, just being like fighting for your fucking life to not get any straight up dong in the shot. <laughs> That's what this scene felt like. Like, a slightly crooked up knee and the corner of the table are putting in the work in this scene. Yeah, but uh, Harkonnen brings yeah. in Dr. Yeah, and of course immediately is like, oh yes, what did I promise you to return you to your wife? Well, she's dead, so I guess you should follow her. And then he murders him, because of, obviously. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in U.S. defense... <laughs> He knew that was going to happen. This is clear in the book. It's, it, essentially, the argument is not, is can I have my Wana back and we can be happy together? It's basically, look, she's in Harkin in custody. She's either dead or she's experiencing a fate worse than death. Mm-hmm. Of those, I would pr- rather that she be dead. So if you know they get what they want from me and then they kill us both, that's perfect. They get what they want from me and she's already dead, that's also perfect. Right. Uh, so... And uh, it, it's at, there's so many fucking details in the book. I'm not going to go into all of them because they're stupid. But as one side note, Yue has the very selective ability to sometimes know exactly when somebody is telling him the truth. And he was taught this by huh. his wife, Wana, who was a Bene Gesserit. Whoa, that's crazy. Um, and there's brief speculation over whether her capture by the Harkonnens was actually part of the great Bene Gesserit scheme. I mean, mm. who the fuck knows, maybe. Um, but basically, so as soon as he walks in the room in the book, he knows that yeah, Wana is doomed. dead and he's just, yeah. He so then when he gets like particularly surprised in the movie either, which given no, how the no. Harkonnens operate, I guess it's just part of the course. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Harkonnens operating, uh, the Baron just monologues about how today the house of Atreides falls, which was again in all the trailers. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Leto just like whispers a little bit to get him to like come closer, lead it closer. I will say that what what Leto <laughs> does is uh, he pulls off the the single tear uh, thing yes. without moving any part of his face or body because Oscar Isaac is a fucking spectacular actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, he does like the little like come and closer. Baron's like, oh, and what's Baron's up like, with oh, that? I'll put on my shield just for carefulness, which I thought was just a great little exposure of a the Baron's paranoia and b how dangerous Leto must be. Is like yeah. okay, well he's fully naked. He's completely paralyzed, uh, and he's completely unarmed on account of being fully naked and paralyzed. But just to be safe, I'll put on my personal shield before I lean over for whatever little yes. fun secret and you got for me. that impulse was a good one, because Leto, of course, immediately bites his tooth and exhales the poison gas, which fills the yes. room, uh, sealing the Baron and his immediate circle all inside. Um, yes. Oh, no. Another good change from the book is that the poison tooth fucking works, because in the book... It doesn't work. The Baron just runs away, and it, uh. he he outruns the poison gas, and his shield is good enough that he just he gets out of the room and slams the door. And he's like, "Ah, I'm not dead. This is great." And it's like, "That's fucking stupid." Uh, and that's what they did in the 1984 version yep. too, where Leto's <laughs> like, "Oh, that guy must be the the Baron. I'll just do my thing." And it's it's not the Baron. It's some rando. And the Baron's like, "Ha ha! I survived. I'm the greatest." Mm-hmm. Uh, so letting Leto's dying movement like not actually be completely pointless it's nice that nice. it mattered a little bit at least yeah it took out yeah, just i don't know smidge. some administrators <laughs> yeah. um paul finds his father's signet ring in the free kit and uh as the daylight rises over the the ruins of the day uh our good friend the ecologist looks over the destruction left behind by the previous night's adventures when duncan idaho pulls up a ship right next to her duncan so idaho! i guess these are our survivors <laughs> who aren't paul yeah. and his mother um Duncan Idaho's fucking mad. Uh, yeah. And he and Kynes, he runs into Kynes and is like, you going to report on this? And she's like, the emperor's told me I can't. And he's yep. like, oh, cool. So the emperor wanted this to happen. And she's just yep. like, mm. the emperor sent <laughs> so, you here to die. Yeah. Uh, Everyone's up on the same boat at this point and they, yep. all, they all get it. They know what's going on. Yeah. We see that the long Harkonnen Baron has survived the gas by holing up at the top of the, <laughs> the ceiling. long Baron. Uh, but he's wheezing, so he's not doing great. So we're probably not going to see too much of him for the rest of the movie. Uh, it's so spooky. I didn't even think he did that on purpose. I thought it was just that, like, he got poisoned and, like, got fucked up and just sort of floated up to the top of the room like some sick balloon just because he... <laughs> I know they mention this in the... Or they, they show Don't Tell This in the movie that he's got these, like, gravity, like, suspensors that just let him float. And in the 1984 version, they're fucking stupid. He like he's like a Willy Wonka character. He's just like bouncing off of ceilings or whatever. This one, he's got more of this like regal nightmare to it. Uh, it's because in the book, he's supposed to be indescribably overweight, like like er, edging up on 500 pounds. Uh, and the suspensors are how he can like move around without pain. So it's it's basically just like a really fancy space wheelchair that lets you float. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess when they were like, hey, if we let the poison actually affect him, wouldn't it be fucking sick if, like, our hazmat guys come in and, and it's all spooky like, and everyone's dead? Top. And then they, like, they hear a sound and they look up and the fucked up Baron's, like, floating on the ceiling. Ah, oh, it would be crazy. crazy. And it's like, it would be crazy. That scene's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, Paul and his mom are hiding out in their tent, which does have spice in it. And so he gets another crazy vision of Zendaya as she shows him soldiers fighting. One is doing all these crazy flips and stunts. And it's Paul. It's obviously Paul. And his it's eyes are blue, Paul. like all the Fremen from all the spice. Um, Jessica asks Paul about what he fears. And he's like, just asks for help as he sees visions of himself in a holy war waged in his name. Uh, and his mom tries to comfort him, but he just flips out on her for making him a freak, which like, yeah, she kind of did. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the second half of the scene that they split. Uh, mm-hmm. So the visions of 
you know, oh, the Kwisatz Haderach, the sleeper has awakened, all that shit. That's all basically from this. This is all supposed to happen at once. Uh, and it's not shown, but the impetus for why Paul has his essentially panic attack while his mentat brain is doing all his crazy math calculations of, like, visions of the future, blah, 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 which is exactly how math works. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, the real thing that's freaking him out is that he knows his father is dead and he cannot make himself feel it Mm. he can't grieve him he can't mourn him he just he feels this cold calculating machine taking over his mind and he knows his father is dead and that this should devastate him and he can't make himself feel the right emotions uh which is deeply harrowing and i like that they kind of take the simpler approach in the movie where it's like you know his father is dead and that really sucks but he's also seeing visions of himself triggering a holy war across the galaxy yeah you know of, of like a a tide of blood waged in the name of his dead father. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I could see that upsetting him. Yeah. Uh, but all the stuff about, like, your Bene Gesserit magic made me a freak is uh, straight off the page, unfortunately, which is also why it's kind of jarringly weird. Um, Paul also notices that someone is approaching them and uses a sand siphon to dig him out. It pokes a hole in the sand that has buried their tent over the night. And there yep. is also the very cute mouse making a, its second of three appearances in this movie. Wadib! Um, little guy. It's a copter flying over them, and who's in the copter? It's Duncan! He salutes Paul as the new Lord Duke, and they fly off into the night with uh, <laughs> Liet uh, Kynes on board as well. Yeah. And Duncan kind of recaps everything that just happened in the last 30 minutes, brings him up to speed about yeah. who's dead and who's not. It's a subtle moment that uh, Paul recognizes that Duncan is flying the thopter before Duncan gets out of the thopter. Uh, in the book, this is because his crazy supercharged mega brain it's so wrinkly that you can just tell that it's duncan inside that ship uh and specifically jessica can't tell that it's duncan she's like ready for combat but paul has transcended the wisdom of his mother he's just so much better and naturally superior and the book spends so much time talking about how freaked out jessica is and how oh my son is so much better than me now and it's like (laughs) (laughs) could you Please fucking stop. So I love that in the in the movie, it makes it clear that, like, look, Paul is kind of a turbo-chad mega genius now. But mm-hmm. also, like, he still needs Jessica a lot. She still knows more than him. She still has more training. He's still a kid who needs his mother. You know, yeah. it, it kind of works. Um, also, this is a completely unrelated side note. But the book makes a big deal that Jessica's heritage is unknown. And as soon as uh, Paul's, like, third eye opens or whatever he immediately figures out just by looking at her face that jessica's true parentage is baron harkonnen himself uh, and they're actually harkonnens ah crazy uh, so that's fucking stupid and i'm kind of glad they left it out and they're gonna need to bring it back if they ever do like dune messiah or children of dune because the ghost of baron harkonnen becomes a plot point later but that's okay that's we're not, not gonna talk about the dumb movie. shit uh, this movie everything sucks and the emperor wants them dead so they go to an old yeah. ecological testing station uh unused after spice was discovered because originally they were trying to make the planet like livable and habitable and then instead they're mm-hmm. like what if we made money off this spice and they just abandoned anything that could be an improvement for the people living there the Fremen all there all listen to uh, Liet. She's like, hey, I demand respect on this planet. Cause I, and it's sort of implied, I think, that's because she successfully has grown some green stuff and is, like, aware of how to... Because you see, Ooh. like, Duncan admiring some of her, like, plants in the testing station oh, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you know, someone who could actually understand how the planet works and how to you know, make it livable would be a very important figure. 
Yeah, it is a little weird. I feel like in the book, Kynes has a bit of a like Lawrence of Arabia type thing mm. in that he he's like the white guy who showed up from space and he's immediately like they're they talk so much about how, oh, everyone on this planet treats you like a leader. They all like and respect you. But, you know, you're not Paul, so he, he can't possibly last yeah. the whole book. That would be we, we need our other, you know, savior to come from space to make mm-hmm. everything right again. Whereas in this one, it really seems more like Kynes kind of just like integrated with the local population, like, you know. Went from being kind of a distant studying, you know, figuring out how it works to just like, okay, well, they know how to survive here. So I kind of need that. Like, okay, we're living together, taking a lover, had a kid. Spoiler alert. I don't think that gets brought up in the movie, but uh, Chani is Kynes' kid. Um, Oh. Yeah. Paul mentions that he's like, I know you, you know, fell in love with the Furman warrior and they die, but they don't talk about uh, her kid at all. Yeah. um, I believe that's correct. I I think that Kynes is uh, Chani's parent. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just, it's cool. And the fact that, like, Kynes kind of has, she she sort of commands respect from the people around here. She is seen as from, and she walks in two worlds. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of very cool. She's just so cool. So I hope nothing bad happens to her oh, in five boy. minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Paul starts by asking her to bear witness to what has happened as he goes to move against the Imperium. And she's like, dude, you can't just, like, take on the entire Imperium. But he's <laughs> like, but I'm the Messiah. And tells Liet that he's seen her dreams as a way to prove this. Uh, meanwhile, it is a little better than that. He actually has a tangible plan. Uh, yeah. What he points out is that there are a lot of great houses out in space that aren't really, you know, they're not the emperor, but they sort of work under the emperor. And all mm-hmm. of them, their nightmare scenario is what just happened to Paul in the House of Atreides, which is that the emperor will sanction a hit, basically, right. and send all their forces to wipe them out. So if all the great houses are like, holy shit, we can't let this, this is intolerable. Uh, if they all band together, they will be powerful enough to not even, like, equal the emperor but fully overthrow him right uh and paul recommends that he can propose to the emperor an alternative to chaos which is hey if you want this shit to not happen again let me marry one of your daughters you have no male heirs on account of how your concubines are all bene gesserit who could just choose whether or not to have male heirs (laughs) get fucked um so basically he's like okay if i if we if we prove that what happened here was the emperor fucking us over then we can rally all the great houses behind me. Then we can take our grievances straight to the emperor. And then we can basically force his hand into making me his heir. And then I can make Arrakis a paradise. I've seen mm-hmm. your dreams, Liet Kynes. I know what you want for this place. And that harkens back to the thing about the trees. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it all works together. It actually does all make a lot of sense. And they explain it in a very elegant fashion. So... Mm-hmm. But we can't go with that plan just yet because we have to let the Sardaukar troops silently descend into the station, moving in on Paul and his mom. Uh, But they set off some traps in the courtyard as they enter and the Fremen launch a counterattack. Duncan, becoming aware of the soldiers moving in, uh, goes out to meet the troops, closing and locking the door to the library area that he's in behind him, making his great sacrifice to stall for time, facing off against the Sardaukar alone. Uh, as he holds them <laughs> off, uh, Leah Kynes opens a secret passageway in the library. Um, it looks like Duncan has gone down and they're starting to laser through the door to cut their way well, in. Well, to be fair, lo- he has a sword through his torso. Duncan Idaho has gone torso, down. But this is he Duncan just fucking Idaho, down. okay? <laughs> the Sardaukar is starting to laser through the door and get Duncan fucking idaho because he gets back up for one last stand as Leah leads them into the get secret passage. Duncan on! And then Duncan actually <laughs> dies. Uh, it's very yeah, sad. Yeah, they get him. The the trio. Duncan Idaho's last stand is given so much more focus because, again, in the book at this point, we're almost entirely following Paul's point of view. Mm-hmm. So we don't really. Duncan Idaho basically is like, oh shit, the Sardaukar, all right, and closes the door. And then they're yeah. like, ah, uh, well, I guess he's dead. And then they leave. And of course, in the in the movie, they're like, no, 
This is Duncan motherfucking this is Idaho. Duncan motherfucking Idaho. <laughs> so Paul, as soon as he figures out what's going on, and there's like this little moment that's just just from the acting, like none of the dialogue supports this, but you can tell that as soon as this shit starts, Duncan Idaho is having flashbacks to Paul being like, I dreamed you died. And he's like, well, I guess it had to happen sometime. And Paul is having flashbacks to the same thing and is like, no, wait, I thought if I was here, I could fix something. And that's why uh, Duncan seals them in because Paul's sprinting at him. And he's like, nope. Okay. Nope. All right. Time Nada. for my heroic sacrifice. Yep. Uh, and he just takes down so many Sardaukar. And like, <laughs> they, they highlight so many times like the Sardaukar, the greatest elite warriors in the mm-hmm. universe. They're deadly assassins. And even taking out one of them is impressive. And Duncan Idaho kills like 12. I, well, when they hire scene. the Sardaukar, the Harkonnens are like, yeah, uh, Atreides has Duncan Idaho. So we need a lot of troops <laughs> to take them on. Yes, and I'm like, honestly, Duncan yeah, motherfucking Duncan Idaho. motherfucking Idaho. <laughs> you need like three battalions. One of them is just for him uh, yeah. as an appetizer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh so, yeah, but he it's so good. And, like, you think he's down for the count. You genuinely are like, okay, they fucking stabbed him. And also yeah. the effect of the shields in this movie, like, blue when it's repelling things, red when something has gotten through, is good because it means that when Duncan Idaho gets stabbed, it's just glowing yeah. red all over. So you're like, that don't it's look It's like so when your good. health bar goes down in the video game and it makes a beeping sound at you, except they're exactly, not beeping yeah. at us. They're just showing us visually. Um, it's just brilliant visual storytelling. That's not how the shields had to look. It's great. Uh, but then he gets up with a sword through him, and he pulls the sword out and uses the sword to kill a bunch of guys, and you're like, yeah! And then Good he falls over. Good for like, Duncan. Okay. Good for Duncan! Um, Liet, uh, leads uh, Paul and his mom through some tunnels that branch off and go in two directions, and she tells them to follow the light and fly. The copter waiting for them uh, straight into the dust storm that's heading their way. She's going to go in the other direction, since there's only two seats in the copter, and make for the Fremen settlement in the south. Uh, and she's going to head to the next station and report this attack via the desert, because she's a Fremen after all. This is her home. She knows how to yeah. navigate the desert. It's very cool. And I'm like, oh man, I hope nothing bad happens to her. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah basically, um, so this whole thing is a little bit different in the book, which is fine. Um, spoiler alert, Kynes does not survive much longer. Um, in the books, this is because Kynes is captured along with Thufir Howitt. Uh, they go about reconditioning how it to be their pet mm-hmm. Mentat assassin, and they're like, eh, just dump Kynes in the desert, take away his still suit, leave him to die. Uh, and Kynes has a whole chapter where he's just, like, dying in the desert and hallucinating his ecologist father being, like, uh, just spouting off fun tidbits, fun facts about Arrakis <laughs> while he's, like, dying in the sand. Is like, oh, my God, Dad, please. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need this right now. Uh, and then uh, a gas pocket under the sand explodes, and he dies. So the way they do it in the movie is better. Much more cinematic. Uh, Paul and his mom have rushed for the copter, successfully taking off and flying for the dust storm. Meanwhile, we follow uh, Liette as she leaves a thumper near the base, which is what you can use to call the sandworms. It just makes like a thump, thump, thump because they're attracted yep. by that sound. Uh, Rhythmic sounds, yeah. And before she can like finish her job as she's watching at the top of the dune as the worm approaches, she's stabbed in the back. <gasps> Oh no! And it makes water explode. It's not like blood because she's wearing a still suit, so mm-hmm. it's just like ah, water. No, no. <laughs> I just thought that was a. Honestly, they're pretty tasteful about what they do and don't show injury wise. Like there's a bit where all the Atreides soldiers have been captured and Robin's just going down the line lopping off heads, but it's tastefully obscured by some blurred out fire in the foreground, and it's like this is cool. You could be a lot more graphic about this. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah. but it so dies the most interesting character in the movie and maybe the only one I particularly cared about uh, is the Sardaukar stabber in the back 
As she goes down to the ground, she says that she only serves Shai Halud and then pounds the ground a bunch, uh, getting herself in the Sardaukar eaten by a sandworm as she like closes her eyes and accepts so the fate of the desert. And I'm like, no, but also it's, it's so the cool. Th- this and a lot of the other additions that aren't technically in the book really expose that this was created by people with endless love in their hearts for this franchise and what makes it work. And they just they don't just want to do it justice. They want to make it really good and giving this character a better send off less of just kind of a oh they jump they dump them in the desert to die you know without their still suit they're just gonna die very slowly it's just like no she kind of goes out on her own terms it's like getting stabbed bites but the fact that she can just be like uh like oh you betray the emperor she's like i serve one master his name is shy hulud and the fact like (laughs) they don't stop her from like thumping on the i guess the thumper must have already gotten the worm pretty close by and she's just like over here Right. Yep. There we go. And then it's just like, it needs him. It's great. It's beautiful. And she has this kind of like, like blissful accepting her fate expression when the worm sort of because mm-hmm. it's sort of girl. They're like, oh no, sand liquefaction. And she's just like, and she's yeah, just like, that's yes, the stuff. This is what I do. Hell yeah. She's so cool, and I'm really sorry she's dead. I After know. this, I think the movie slows down a lot. It does, but also less. <laughs> the happens. movie's like, like, <laughs> yeah. Like Kynes is the factor that makes this movie good when she's around. Yeah. Uh, Paul and his mom are tailed by other ships as they head into a sandstorm. Paul does some fancy read dangerous flying into the sandstorm and they manage to lose the other ships, but not before sustaining heavy damage themselves because of all the sand. Oh, we can't forget... Sorry, right when they get to the Thopter, they do the uh, sci-fi equivalent of the horror movie Can't Get the Keys in the Ignition bit. Oh my god, bit. yeah. <laughs> they, like, fire it up a couple times and, like, the engine turns over and then it finally takes off and it's like, that's not necessary. They aren't even being actively pursued right now. Yeah, anyway. Paul has a moment where he, like, goes into his mind palace and he gets visions about <laughs> life in the desert and he has to let go to let the... You can't fight the storm or whatever, so he lets go of the controls yeah, and lets the storm the force, just, like, turn carry Turn off your targeting around. computer. Yeah, exactly. Very standard shit. Um, um, and I think in these visions he sees a guy who we yes. later... Yeah, this is where we see Jamis, or Jamis for the first time. Uh, and we don't know who this is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's going to be big. It's, yeah, and he's all this is, happy looking and friendly in these visions. Yes. So. Because I also forgot there was one specific detail of the differences in how things played out in the tent is that in the book, he realizes that he is seeing alternate futures. He's mm-hmm. seeing possible timelines. But in the movie, he sees the vision of, you know, of a war of blood, you know, the uh, something, something, my father's skull, et cetera, et cetera, holy war in my name. And he's convinced this is the future. Uh, but as he starts having visions of this character, this is setting up that he's going to realize that he's having visions of possible futures. And this is also hinted at in a brief moment a little bit later where he has a vision where the scene plays out the same, but Duncan Idaho is still alive and is with them, which is another little tidbit of like, hey, that didn't happen. Why am I having visions about that? So this part I know confused a lot of people because he starts having visions of things that fully don't happen, whereas up until this point it's been visions of things that do happen. Uh And it's like, wait, hold uh, on. Well, but that's what this is setting up, that he's seeing alternate futures. And it's really hard to do that cinematographically, whereas in a book, you can just be like, Paul realized he was witnessing a landscape of different possible futures. And it's like, yeah, okay, I guess that's happening. (laughs) So anyway. Yeah. Uh, We move away from him getting rocketed around the sandstorm to the Harkonnen guy who's being healed by a pool of black goop as Dave Bautista reports in about how the boy and his mother flew into a storm and surely the boy is dead and they just take that at face value for some reason and the Harkonnens return to selling spice to make back their losses and plan 
plot to kill all the Fremen in case you were worried they weren't going to still be villains in the ongoing series. But they're kind of, of done they- for the movie. <laughs> ah, no hard feelings. They just kill Duke Leto. But I'm sure that's fine. We can be civil about it. Uh, mm-hmm. This scene is almost straight from the book, except for the fact that uh, the Baron was not in a goop pool because the poison didn't affect him in the book. Yes. But in this case, they were like, we must heal him. With the power of goop. As all good sci-fi must include a goop pool for health. Uh, It's just always a rule that the Harkonnens have to be so nasty. Like, in this one, it's goop and, like, bald people. And in the other one, it was, well, it was just really gross shit. We're not going to have to get into it. They toned down the nastiness from the book, if anything. And that's fine. We don't need to get into what exactly they left out. It's just bad. We're talking about the movie we saw. And in this one, there was goop. Uh, Back in the storm, Paul is roused by an alarm, time to actively fly the plane again, and they exit the storm, but one wing doesn't quite open, and they just kind of, like, lose wings one by one until eventually they crash land into the sand. Uh, Paul and his mom make a run for the rocks, because the rocks are the only place the sandworms can't eat you, and they change into their desert uh, suits to set off to find the Fremen. Walking through the rocks, Paul flashes back to Duncan's time with the Fremen, has more of his visions where he's like, yo, it's Zendaya. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about him seeing Duncan on the rocks is true, but also there's a, this parallels a moment in the book where he he remembers a premonition he had had where they were at this spot, him and his mother, but Duncan Idaho was still with them. And he realized that it was a vision of a world, a timeline where Duncan Idaho hadn't died fighting Sardaukar where he'd managed to survive Mm. Uh, because Paul's prescience isn't like perfect or at a hundred percent so stuff does happen that he can't control and sometimes he doesn't know what's going on which is kind of a rough deal uh, because it means he knows just enough to blame himself for everything going wrong but not enough to actually fix it yeah but um but yeah so this is the first basically tangible hint of like what he's having visions of are no longer visions of the future Mm -hmm. it's visions of things that he could make the future if he can figure out how yeah like he flashes forward at one point to jamis who we're going to meet soon and he's like a friend in that visage he's like smiling and like teaching him lessons of the desert he flashes around to zendaya a bunch all that good stuff and they kind of just walk through sand and have visions for a while um this part is very slow there are a lot of points in this where it's like so they're gonna end the movie now right we're like no we find the fremen it's over (laughs) and it just keeps keep going they do that stupid sand walk (laughs) don't get wormed (laughs) (laughs) because they make for the seats where duncan the audacity I'm just glad they planted it earlier in the movie so they don't have to explain it to us. Because at this point, if they explained a single other thing to me, I was like, I'm turning this movie off. Um, <laughs> Paul also, the way he's explaining it was giving me big weeaboo energy because he's like, I've read this in my many texts about the Fremen. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, that was that was a purposeful. That was another one of the little cheeky winks and nods of things that they didn't do in the book. Because in the, in the book, as I recall, he's like, we're going to have to walk in a way that doesn't attract the worms with my super wrinkly brain i think i can figure out a way and whereas in this one he's like oh the sandwalk yeah it makes sense that the people who live here would already know how to do this yeah. so i learned about it in my film books as just <laughs> in in the same way there's another example of this in an upcoming scene i'll just bring it up there yeah they take five uh, as some on top of a dune while some distant rumbling alerts them to the presence of the worms. They make their continuation towards some rocks, but the worm keeps getting closer and closer. And unluckily, they've hit drum sand, which is sand that sounds nuts. And they got to run for the rocks, so they just sprint <laughs> towards some rocks as the worm gets closer and closer in a shot that was in literally all of the trailers. And then Paul yeah. and his mom make it to the rocks just in time as the wormiest worm reaches up from the sand and like turns its little worm head to look at them as it's all tall and it looms ominously instead of eating them until a thumper from somewhere else draws it away someone had lured the worm uh, away from these two 
uh, as Paul and his mom run deeper into the rocks. Depending on what screen you watch this scene on, it can be completely visually incomprehensible. <laughs> but if you're watching on a decent enough screen, you can be like, oh, yeah, that's a big worm face. But the whole scene is color graded quite dark, yes. and the worm is like black on black on black. So you need a pretty good screen at a pretty high brightness to be able to make out the teeth. Uh, and the poor VFX artists were like, we rendered a whole like beatboxer's throat muscles in there, and you can't see any of it. Mm. Um but, uh, yeah, the outrunning the sandworm scene is it's pretty harrowing because after a while you're like, there's no fucking way they're going to outrun this thing. That thing's moving like a freaking bullet train and they're just sprinting on sand. But then they make it and the sand's like, mm, interesting, and then just leaves. Yeah, so it's, it's like, like okay, well, I don't want to ma- smash my sandworm face into these rocks, so I guess I can't get them anymore. Um, <laughs> it's like the floor is lava, ultimate edition. <laughs> basically, that's kind of the whole yeah. last 20 minutes of this movie. Uh, <laughs> I think that a lot of why this book resonated with so many people is just how spooky that single concept is of like, oh, you walk and then a, a big old worm <laughs> pop, pops yeah, up and eats The down. worm effect, Ooh, you know. spooky. It's, it's what we're all here for. Um, yeah. Everyone, anyone who says they're watching a Dune movie for anything other than the Shy Hulud is a fucking liar. Yeah. We're all here for the worms and we know it. <laughs> As they catch their breath, Paul realizes that he and his mom are not alone. It's a group of Fremen led by Stilgar. Stilgar! It's Stilgar, the Fremen from the beginning of the movie that like said hello to Leto and everything. And Stilgar's like, well, we can't touch Paul at all. But uh, Jamis, who we recognize from Paul's villains and many of the other Fremen Visions, who are lurking yeah. around, are less certain about you know taking in these two to their siege. Um, this is where that other bit happens, where it's like, they clearly added this in as like, oh, found a plot hole, let's fix that. Uh, which is that uh, when Stilgar and the rest of the Fremen find Paul and Jessica, there's a lot of argument among the Fremen over like, ah, kill them and take their bodies water. No, what if these are the people that Kynes told us to look out for? And in the movie, Paul is like, hey, Stilgar, we met at my father's meeting. You know me. I am absolutely the guy that Kynes told you to look for. And he's like, oh, yeah, that makes yes. sense. I'm glad we got that cleared up anyway. But the mother we can probably kill and harvest for water. So it's just very funny that, like, half of the dialogue is straight out of the book. And then with little additions of, like, by the way, yeah. in case you forgot, we've literally met before. And it's like, oh, yeah, or, yeah, okay, That's yeah, we're coming together. Uh, Jessica so also tries to use non-desert power to negotiate, but obviously no one's having that. She's like, well, we should. No. This is the Paul of House of Trades. And they're like, we literally could not give less of a shit. <laughs> yeah, we don't care. Uh, but there's a there's a very funny bit in this that I, I thought was cool. And it's funny in the book, too, but it's extra funny here uh, because, mm-hmm. of course, Stilgar is like, all right, yeah, the, the boy, we, he'll, he can learn our ways, but you, you're too old or whatever, so we'll just kill you. And he goes to kill Jessica, and she just fucking beats his yeah. ass at me. <laughs> he's like, well, you should have told me you were a weird woman. And she's like, you never asked. The conversation dried up. A out. weirding woman. Weirding but woman. yeah, it, it was a very, like, MCU, like, when were you going to tell me you know how to do kung fu? Yeah. Oh, well, you never asked. Uh, but it was kind of <laughs> funny because, like, you can sort of tell that, like, Stilgar, when he's in, like, the headlock, is like, I'm not not into this. <laughs> yeah, and he's at that point, he's like, well, I guess both of you are coming with us. And he tells the rest of the group that he vouches for them and they're off to their siege. But uh, Paul finally meets Zendaya, who was right behind him in combat uh, as he made his way up into a rock to steal a, a pistol and, you know, help his mom out. But it was irrelevant. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she tells him that he looks like a little boy and leads him back down the rocks. <laughs> it's very cute because, of course, he sees her in real life for the first time. And he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And she's my like, vision. who's this twig man? <laughs> yeah, and, but away. also, like, he has no idea what to say. And it's actually extremely cute because he's really awkward around her because he's like, how, how can I possibly be normal about this yes. person who I've been having, like, smooching dreams about <laughs> with my psychic future for vision for years. months at this point at least? And then you, you meet her face to face and she's just like... <laughs> You took the stupid way up these rocks, and I wouldn't have let you kick any of my friend's ass. Uh, here, I'll show you the better way down, little boy. And he's just like, oh, God, <laughs> everything <laughs> is terrible. Uh, uh, and this upcoming bit is uh, not supposed to happen here. It's supposed to happen when they get to the siege, and you can tell because, the, again, the dialogue, the way the characters are talking, it's like, hey, there's no time for this. We can't do this now. It's like, no, I, I'm adamant. We're doing it now. And it's like... Fuck, man, I guess we're going to do it now. I guess at the end of the movie, we're going to do this thing you want to do rather mm-hmm. than when it's supposed to happen. Uh, so when Stilgar's like, very well, we will travel together to our siege, and there you will become one of our people. Like, that's what's supposed to happen. And then after that, Jamis yes. kicks up a fuss and they fight. But instead... Yes, no, so Stilgar... Like, the movie needs to end with a dramatic set piece, <laughs> so I'm challenging you! <laughs> yeah, Stilgar's, like, takes the pistol from Paul, gets it, puts Chani in charge of the newcomers to make sure that they keep up with the group, but Jama still objects, stating that the strongest leads, and since he... Uh, Stilgar just got his ass beat by a woman he invokes the right to combat but Jamis can't challenge the weird woman for whatever reason so Paul has to fight in her place um, it's because she's like uh, the Bene Gesserit there's a word for them that they're using I just don't remember what it is uh, It's they're like holy people yeah. according to the so basically it's like well you can't challenge yeah, her directly you can't kill a nun you know it's not yeah <laughs> That's, it just don't look good with a big man upstairs yeah. you know um, <laughs> Paul has more visions this time of his death as so uh, and he hears the words like, well, Paul Atreides must die for quite such have or whatever to rise. To rise. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, he's you... like, he's like willing himself to have premonitions about how the fight is going to go. And he's sort of gaining control of this future vision power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, but all the visions he's having are bad where he dies and gets stabbed and dies. And he's just like, hmm, OK, uh, so that's promising. Yeah. And Chani gives him the knife because he's been mentioning like oh it's important someone's gonna give me a knife i just don't know what's going on and she gives him the knife and is like you know hey you know you're absolutely about to die but uh it'll be cool for you to die with this knife in your hand and he's like thanks (laughs) this poor guy uh yeah Chani gives him the Chris knife specifically made of the tooth of Shahalud, which is very symbolic and all that. Uh, Paul yes. gets called over to combat and he goes to say something to Chani, but thinks better of it because she literally does not know him at all. Um, <laughs> Paul and Jemmy's face off, Jamis monologuing about how this should be a welcome, easy death compared to what awaits him. And the fighting starts. Uh, Paul at one point gets a knife to Jamis's throat and asks if he yields. Um, but there's no yielding in this fight. This is a fight to the death because of course it yeah. is. Um, Paul, his mother, uh, puts him on blast for, has never killed a man, so I guess now he'll have to break that seal. She's not putting him on blast for it. She's explaining. Uh, there are two factors to this. Uh, one of them is not brought up in the, uh, movie, but is present kind of in the choreography in the book, is that Paul is trained to fight people wearing shields, uh, which means fighting somebody just, you know, face to face in the book, they're not even wearing their still suits, uh, because this is not happening in the open desert there. Uh, he's used to, like, getting the knife close and then slowing down. Mm-hmm. So it looks like he's toying with Jamis. And in the book, the Fremen are like, Jesus, did we like let a scorpion into our group? What the f- What's wrong with this kid? But then Paul's like, 
I don't want to kill this guy. I've never killed a man before. And also, all of my training is telling me to do this differently and wrong. So it's just a rough time. But he is unquestionably a better fighter than Jamis. He's actually just yeah. wiping the floor with him. He's destroying him. Um, yeah. And wrecking. quickly after realizing that like the only way forward is to murder this man uh, in the ritual combat that he demanded, uh, Paul takes a moment to <laughs> stab him and then holds his hand as he dies, closing his eyes afterwards with the great reverence. And there's like this moment of like comrade, like Jamis, like there's no hard feeling. Yeah. Jamis like kind of gives him this look of like understanding and then mm-hmm. he like fades away He's and like, they bundle up his body to harvest his yeah, body. Yeah, it's like, we got you. Um, yeah, but this is unqu- this is the moment where it becomes crystal clear that Paul's visions of the future are no longer just visions of what must happen because he's had the visions of Jamis being like, I will guide you through the desert and I will teach you our ways. And obviously that's not happening now. Uh, and he had the vision of Jamis killing him, which couldn't have happened in the same timeline as Jamis being like, I'll teach you our ways. So that's not happening either. And now that Jamis is dead, neither of those things are happening. So it's just like, okay, so Paul's visions are now showing him possibilities that he can work to avoid that's very interesting and they managed to like show don't tell this i don't think he ever at any point states that he doesn't tell that to jessica and she's never like that's impossible we can only witness things that are which mm-hmm. is why uh at the very beginning when the bene Gesserit is like can you you know do you often dream things exactly as they happen and in the book he says yes and in the movie he says not exactly mm-hmm. it's, it's just a little it's like that's not like. the rules we're playing with here so it's just as good it's yeah good. um, um. But because Paul has killed a man, and according to his vision, that means that Paul himself is now dead and now he can be the messiah or whatever. It's very symbolic. Um, so, yeah. This, this, it's, we're so okay. close to the end. Paul, Paul has been accepted <laughs> as one of the Fremen. They want to take him to their siege. Jessica tries once again to insist that they do something against desert power and get Paul off world. But he's like, no, 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 mom. My road is here now. I have to walk into the desert. Uh, and they all the walk off as music swells towards the home of the Fremen, the vast deserts, a sandworm going by in the distance that one of the Fremen is riding on. Uh, yeah, they've been teasing the use of the maker hooks all movie. <gasps> People keep pulling them out yeah. or like having them in bags uh, yeah, and then not using them. had them on her hands when she was originally using the thumper in the scene where she died. That's like... But then she got stabbed. She got so, stabbed she so we couldn't them. see it. Yeah. But, you know, there's, you see a Fremen in the distance and Zendaya says, this is only the beginning. And Paul says, desert power <laughs> one more time and then the movie ends. <laughs> Just to spite you. I hate yeah. that. <laughs> such a stupid line. It's a very stupid line. Yeah. And I love that they say it so many times because they're like, everyone oh needs God. to understand they need that to know it's the power, power of the desert, the desert power. And I'm like, I get it. I fucking get it, man. You're <laughs> oh, in the yeah, desert the and it's got a the power. Desert. There's giant sandworms the everywhere. Desert, desert we can power. think of better phrases. That desert power? Yes, that desert what, power. What other <laughs> desert power would it be? But that's, and the audacity of having Chani, who has not been in the movie at all, except in like beginning. flowy L'Oreal commercial flashbacks oh, and flash forwards, and then like has only said like three surly lines to Paul, and then turning back and saying, this is only the beginning. And then the movie fucking ends with like, all right, fuckers, hope you like that one enough to fund a part two, because otherwise yeah. you're never getting closer. Well, I think they've been greenlit for three parts. I think that that was like a confirmed oh, yeah, situation. There was no way this movie wasn't going to work after it ended up being that good. But it's just very funny that Villeneuve was like, I know what you're about. I'm going to title this one part one, even if you don't <sighs> greenlight the sequels right from the beginning. Uh, There's a bigger rant in here that I personally don't like multi-part movies. Sequels are a different story, yeah. but like, Part one, part two. Um. I think that parts of this movie could have been tightened up. I don't think it had to be two and a half hours. I think there were parts that you could have probably gotten this down to an even two if you really stretched yeah. it. 
I think all the dialogue and a lot of the intercut scenes were important, but I also think they were trying very, very hard to compensate for how much the book handles things with narration mm -hmm. and explanations and inner monologues that have no elements of mystery or confusion. There are, there's basically no point when you're reading the book where you are actively confused about what's happening. They'll even sometimes do things out of order just so you understand 100% of the context for what a character is about to be warned about. Yeah. Um, so the movie obviously didn't do that. The movie was like, I think it's kind of fun when there's tension and stakes and suspense and the audience doesn't always know exactly what's going on. Uh, so, you know, if you cut down a little bit on all the weird, confusing visions or even just made it a little easier to visually distinguish between what's a vision of the future and what's happening right now. Um, there were things that I think could have been done to tighten it up. But overall, I really like this movie. I mean, at this point, I've seen it three times and it's a long ass movie. <laughs> yeah. So well, that kind of brings us right naturally into our final, you know, thought section. Um, yeah. I usually ask, like, is is this a movie you'd recommend people watch and maybe in what situation should they watch it? It sounds like you enjoyed it quite a bit. Do you have sort of like a like tie in a bow for us, your thoughts on the movie Dune? I would say don't watch it on a plane if you can help it. But other than <laughs> well, that... Hey now, don't <laughs> knock it till you try it. <laughs> oh, it hurts me. It hurts to think about. Um, I guess watching it on a phone would be slightly worse. Oh, um, I don't know. Those plane screens well, are pretty saturated. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I think that this is an interesting movie. I mean... You know, we we both know Dominic Noble and his Lost in Adaptation yes. series. And I think that they are very interesting because they unpack a lot of things that I think are very interesting about movies and the process of adapting books to movies mm -hmm. and how sometimes the more faithful adaptations are not the best. I mean, the Maximum Ride movie is the one I hold up as the er example of why a movie that can be 100% correct to the book can be a tire fire to watch and why sometimes having less authorial participation can be good, but sometimes having... More authorial participation can be good. Again, Sandman just came out. Neil Gaiman, heavily involved, treated the whole thing as though the original run of Sandman comics was the first draft that they were tweaking and improving on with 30 years of hindsight to adjust. That's kind of how I feel about Dune the movie. I feel like the people who made this movie are very aware of the previous adaptations of Dune, the miniseries, the movies, and how none of them have really been considered good mm -hmm. some of them i've seen have been considered more thorough you know a mini series can actually cover a lot of the ground in the books that the movie kind of glossed over but i'm gonna be completely honest with you i don't know if that stuff deserved to make it onto the screen <laughs> i like when you described dune as nerd homework at the beginning of this i think that's 1000 yeah. percent correct in a very real way like there's a lot to like about dune i think the sheer scope of the world building and the the granularity, the degree to which everything was developed down to like, hey, if you have shield technology, what fighting styles have developed around that? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you have laser guns that can cut through anything, how do they interact with shields? If, you know, it, it's the future of the world. One of the funniest things in the book that doesn't at all get brought up in the movie is the concept of the family atomics, which is that all of these great houses just have a stockpile of nukes that's, like, been passed down the family for generations <laughs> that they don't use, but they keep around, you know, as deterrents or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, Dune is a very empty world. Like, the movie shows us the Fremen in the background. The book will mention the Fremen in the background or, like, the people who populate different planets and the holdings. But we never see them. And we never yeah. really get the impression that they matter. And, in fact, all the characters we follow don't care about them or will dismiss them as non-human or unimportant or lesser stock or all this other weird eugenics -y shit. So you end up with a, a world 
that feels very empty and very depopulated. And I, I mentioned this on Twitter the other day, and a few people were like, well, you know, like in Star Wars, we don't ever see anybody. And it's like in Star Wars, we go to cantinas and we see a slice of the entire random population. Mm-hmm. And like, we don't see the population of Alderaan, but we see a lot of people on Tatooine. We see, you know, people on Coruscant. We see people in a fucking diner in the prequels. Yeah, like, I think that, that kind of gets at what I think doesn't connect for me with Dune, both uh, more so in the book, but because uh, the movie I can appreciate, <laughs> like, I don't think it's a bad movie. I just don't think it's my cup of tea. Um, like right. visually, I can't knock it, and like the sound is great and everything, and like the acting's not bad. But the characters in Dune that we, as the audience, are asked to follow and care about, tend to be the aloof, detached ones. Um, yeah, and the fact that it's so much better than it is in the book is not a compliment no. for Dune overall. <laughs> um, I think it's a big ask to ask your audience to relate to someone who is intentionally very unrelatable and. and Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that you can't relate to Paul, but he is above humanity in many ways. Uh, and that is a tall task. Uh, yeah, I think that this is a thing that a lot of the uh, <clears throat> sci-fi of that era sort of struggled with, that the idea that transhumanism and that like the future of humanity leaves all these petty human considerations in the dust mm-hmm. in the past where they belong. It was a thing that just showed up a lot. You know, the idea is that, like, oh, we'll transcend our emotions, we'll transcend our weaknesses. And it's like, the thing is, you and I are both fans of a different utopic space future, Star Trek, yeah. where it's like, yeah, we go to the future, we transcend our problems like capitalism and a cash-based economy and pockets on our clothing, but like, <laughs> we still have emotions and passions mm-hmm. and dumb shit happens a lot of the time, and we go on the holodeck to LARP Sherlock Holmes every Thursday. It's like, the people in those sh- series, is, even the ones that are like aliens or androids, feel like people and they feel very relatable even in ways that weren't intentional by the creators of the series um you know everyone who's neurodivergent loving data even though gene roddenberry definitely didn't know what that word was and wasn't doing it on purpose like you know Mm -hmm. it's a setting that feels populated by people you know human beings whereas dune is an incredibly artfully constructed universe right down to the the incredibly fine details and it feels very empty and I think that's why fans love a few very specific things about it. You know, the people who love Dune love the Shai Hulud because those are cool. Big old worms. Big old they worms. love the concept of spice. They love the spice must flow. They love the idea of a psychedelic space drug that lets you see the fucking future because that slaps. Um, they love the litany against fear because it's a fun little thing to remember or recite or put on a T-shirt. And it's honestly a pretty good grounding technique if you suffer from anxiety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um And they remember individual lines of just fun little dialogue. And, you know, most of them aren't absolutely going to bat for Thufir Hawat and his scintillating spy drama uh, (laughs) or how cool it is that everyone is a magical supercomputer who can do like eight digit arithmetic in their brain because when they were a baby, someone Mm -hmm. fed them times tables or some shit. And I do think the movie does a better job than the book. I mean, obviously I've read one chapter and then bailed out of the book. So you're bigger (laughs) than me, but I watched the whole movie. It's very dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think they do a better job of humanizing the characters in a way that makes them more engaging to follow. Um, Immensely so. Yeah. Don't think that that is the main draw of Dune. Uh, and if you no. go into it looking to become attached to Paul Atreides, you're going to be disappointed. Um, yeah. The movie does a better job of making you like him mm-hmm. than the book, but, you know. Yeah. And that's not a knock on, like, Timothée's performance or anything. Timothée. Timothée. No, yeah, he's doing a great Everyone job. Everyone in this movie doing a great in this job. Movie. It's just that the yeah. way that the characters are written and the way that the narrative is structured, it's not meant to be 
um, uh, no. making you get really attached to a lot of these characters, except for a handful of them who we did get attached to, who of course died. So- <laughs> but Kynes wasn't designed to be, you know, no. likable, especially like not in Idaho. The book. I would say Duncan Idaho made to yeah. be likable. <laughs> Duncan Idaho, we're supposed to like from the book because, again, he becomes like the representative of all of humanity mm-hmm. for Paul later on the line. And it's like that. OK, yeah, sure. But, you know, in the book, we don't really see him that much. And he's not that great. But in the movie. Oh, yeah. No, I totally buy That's it. Jason this guy's Momoa, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's Jason Momoa. It's just kind of playing the character he always plays. But like it's it's good. It yeah. works. You know, if it ain't broke. Uh, and I think that the way that this movie strikes me is that if you take the original Dune and you treat it like a raw material. This movie is what you can create if you are an incredibly skilled artist working with that raw material. Mm. Because when you're specifically approaching it from the perspective of how do you take the book and turn it into this, you notice like they pick and choose parts from different pieces of the book. They take things that weren't next to each other and they put them in the same scene. They remove whole characters to reattach later, presumably. Um, They just do a very interesting job of constructing a cohesive and very pleasant experience out of what is essentially like the Silmarillion, but drier. Yeah, I think if you look at this as an exercise and adaptation, it's like a masterclass. Um, and if you look yeah. at it as a movie that you're getting entertainment out, if you are predisposed to like this kind of sci-fi, then you'll have a good time with it. And yeah. if you're more familiar with, I'd say, like traditional blockbuster story structure, maybe you're not going to have as good a time. But it is worth watching to find yeah. out. I think that's the kind of thing For you sure. can't like predict. Um, yeah, I think that if long. you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> yeah. it, it is a, it's, it's a worthwhile watch. Um, and I, I, mean, I mean, yeah, uh, when I first watched this movie, I hadn't read Dune in years. I'd seen the 1984 adaptation <laughs> semi-recently. Couldn't remember how accurate that was. I think I could say that. It is significantly better. Yeah, the 1984 one is a tire fire and a half. Um, But this one, you know, it's... I don't think it's for everyone, but I don't think any piece of art is for everybody. I I think I always approached this with the mindset of, like, I wonder if they can actually make this work. Because for years and years, Dune was, like I mentioned at the beginning, considered unfilmable. Um, Excuse me. And part of that was because uh, I think I saw a Tumblr post describing it as like the climax of every Dune move, uh, Dune's book is a bunch of people who've forgotten how to act like human beings standing in a cathedral sized room monologuing at each other. <laughs> and that's completely accurate. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, if you tried to film that straight, it would be the most boring thing in the world. Uh, and if you try and film Dune as it is from the book, you just get narrations nonstop over people looking stoic. And it's just absolute nonsense. You know, you need to t- change uh, any kind of source material when you adapt it to a new medium. Mm-hmm. They just don't work the same. Um, and I think if you're interested in the space of classic sci-fi, because Dune is foundational. Mm-hmm. Like, Dune is up there with, like, Star Wars and Star Trek in terms of how much of an impact yeah. it you had. You know Dune is influential because it would later inspire a particularly famous Spongebob episode. And if it can worm its way into <laughs> children's cartoons from 60s sci-fi, it probably has some sort of lingering influence on people who consume and create media at the yeah, very least. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Dune, there are certain stories that essentially just kind of play close to the middle of the curve of whatever genre they're in. You know, they don't they don't go too far afield in the tropes department. Dune is full of so much weird shit mm-hmm. that I think it was very memorable just by sheer virtue of how innovative it was. And yeah. I think if you're interested in classic sci-fi, modern sci-fi and its potential origins, the space of adapting media in general, uh, 
sound design, Hans Zimmer, uh, cinematography. There are a lot of angles of approach that I think can make this movie a worthwhile watch. Not necessarily worth watching three times. I mean, I watched it the first time and I was very skeptical. And as mentioned, like the first 50 minutes or so, I was like, all right, you know, how much longer? And then when we hit the crawler scene, I was leaning forward in my seat. And that doesn't happen with me. Um, And from that point on, I was sold. I was just curious to see where they would go and how far they would get. and then the second time I watched it, it was because I was hanging out with a bunch of friends and we like ordered dim sum and we were like, hey, let's put something on in the background while we eat. We're not going to get too invested. Ha ha. Hey, we've all already seen dude. Let's just fire that up. You know, we're not going to miss anything. And then we just all got stuck back into it. <laughs> and of course, for the third time, it was homework for this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really redoubling the nerd homework side of things. And for the record, I am the one who chose to listen to the book before doing this. I thought it would be fun to have that context. Sophia didn't make me do this. No. There's no cruel and unusual punishment going on. That was my fault. Uh, and it was very interesting. I thought it was a very interesting learning experience, although I feel like I'm being too mean to Frank Herbert because every single one of my critiques is just like, it's been 60 years, you know? Yeah. He doesn't need to know. It's. I mean, <laughs> but, it's, it's tough when you, you watch like an adaptation of a property while also reading that property because you're bound yeah. to like one more than the other. Um, yeah, and, you're bound to and like I knew I was going to like the movie of more. one more than the other, or like appreciate certain narrative choices that maybe like change from source to source, and so that can be a very interesting yeah. angle to look at it from. I think this is a movie that you cannot really turn off your brain to watch. Mm-hmm. I think the only parts that you can turn off your brain to watch are the sand crawler scene yeah. and the uh, everything. For one up thing, scene. they keep throwing in words fun. that mean nothing. So if you turn off your brain, you're just not going to have any <laughs> yeah. idea what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that part is also annoying. Uh, but if you have even a passing knowledge of doing the books and you thought it was interesting but just way too dry and boring, the movie's really good for yeah. that. Um, if you're just kind of interested in movies in general, I think it's worth at least checking out. You know, I, mm-hmm. I can't promise everyone's going to like it. I know that, you know, the reason I like it is because I've approached it from, like, three different analytical angles <laughs> at this point. The first one was comparing it to the 1984 one. The second one was watching with friends and shit-talking. And the third one was specifically comparing to the book I just finished reading. So... You know, I think if you have, like, a plan, like a goal when you're watching this movie, it can be really fun. And I think it's fun even without that, if you're just kind of sitting to be entertained. Yeah. But it's not like a popcorn flick, exactly. No, I wouldn't... I don't know if fun is the word I would use to describe this movie, but it is inarguably <laughs> well-constructed. Like, I don't get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I personally find it a little bit dry, with the exception of a few scenes here and there. But that doesn't mean I don't appreciate no, yeah. it on the levels that it's working on. I think that's just personal A desert planet movie. Dry. You know that's desert saying. power for you, but... <laughs> But the, the thing is, like, it's still, it it was critically very successful. There's nothing technically flawed about it. It's just a yep. matter of do you resonate with the story or not. And you can't find that out if you don't watch it. So I do think that it's worth exactly. examining, even if you're like, I don't, I just have two and a half hours to kill tonight. I want to watch a movie that I might get something out of. This might be a good option for you. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's a very interesting experience, mm-hmm. no matter what. And, I, you know, worst comes to worst, you don't have a great time. Yeah. And that's well, OK. That's one more yeah. movie watched in your life. That's how you learn. Yeah. Uh, but speaking exactly, of one yeah. more movie we watched, we've about hit the runtime of Dune. So I think it's appropriate for us to let the audience go. Uh, Red, thank yes. you so much for joining me again today. This has been a blast. Um, yeah. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Of course, yes. Uh, well, most of the time I'm doing stuff on the YouTube channel, Overly Sarcastic Productions. My videos go up every other Friday. On the Fridays that I don't upload, uh, upload my channel partner Blue does. So if you're more interested in history and such like, that's uh, his <laughs> half of the channel. But I do tropes and myths and other such fun things. Uh, and I also sometimes go on Twitter. Uh, a lot of the times <laughs> I go on Twitter. So that uh, that's at OSP YouTube if you're interested in checking it out. And the ads are good that I'll probably be back on here at some oh, point in the I'm future. Sure. With uh, like, hope I'll, I'll like have to yo-yo back to a movie you actually enjoy, uh, because you know, 
it, as long as Jupiter spin, Ascending, I mean, like, there's no rules in this podcast, right? The only rule is you have to right. pick a movie. So you could do whatever uh-huh. you want, but you have a space right. theme going. So I will I do. Uh, be hoping for a space movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to gonna have to stick with it unless I find something that's really good. Mm. Um, and so I, th- I don't the know if this one's gonna actually do next. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I considered it, but that one's kind of tortuous to watch in places. Yeah. Um, I don't actually know if we've beaten the runtime of Doom, but that's okay. That, that we're close. Have to it's two thirty-five. We're at two thirty-three. I think, give Ooh, or take. My. Um, but uh, <laughs> this is—I think we—I don't want to beat the runtime of Dune. I feel like that no, would be yeah, yeah, yeah. failing. The fact that we beat the runtime of the Batman—that was already kind of a stretch, <laughs> yes. and there were three of us. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. No, it was the. This was really fun. Uh, thanks for having me, as always. Uh. I'll try and find more fun movies next time. I don't think I want to make you watch Event Horizon. I feel like that one would be hard <laughs> well, to talk about. Well, you ponder that for a while while we uh, you know, head off. I sense a sandworm coming, and I got to get to some rocks. So thank you guys for listening. <laughs> Roger we'll that. be back with another future episode. I don't know, two weeks, whenever you're watching this. <laughs> Listening to this, <laughs> this is going great. Desert Power, it's have fantastic. fun. <laughs> Desert Power! Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on October 17th with another thrilling installment. And if you're a patron, maybe keep a special eye out on your feed next Monday for a potential bonus episode that might be dropping around. I don't know. That might be something cool to check out. If you've got any questions, comments, or concerns for the pod, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron. Links to that and our guest Red's content can all be found in the show notes below. I'd like to give a special thank you to all the patrons who joined us in September. Uh, It's thanks to you guys and all the other members over on Patreon for uh, keeping the show going and helping me feed my cat. So genuinely, uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, So shout out to Elazar Lopez, Ben, Alice Greenlaw, Anil Mehta, Ebony Voigt, Brennan, Alteca, Gabriel Hernandez, Jax, Catherine, Ellen Davis, KC, an optimist, 206 Broken Bones, Robert Brock, Brad Burchell, Buteo Astra, Guy Guy, Auden Landoy Soli, Dominic Noble, Ryan Yoke, Travis Poe, Laren, L Crucible, Red Scapegoat, JM, Data Fox, Captain Higgs, Terje Thornquist, Logan Worm, Ooh, worm. Very Dune appropriate. Gabriel Nichols, Da Fivid, Nara Fay, Michael Gorich, Nina Rose, Malcolm Pope, Ethan the Winter Warlock, Joey Lippert, Zathamir, Mnemois, and Victor Bader. Thank you guys and to everyone else on Patreon who supports the show. It means the world. And I hope you guys enjoy this and all future episodes.